Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Today on Open Loops, we have a returning guest. I I didn't even realize he was going to come on again this quickly, but you know what? Why not? This is a man who has a lot to say about the realms of uh, being a creative force in the world, hypnosis, uh, difference-making, the mind. Uh, One of of the stars of the Open Loops show, uh, master hypnotist, author, teacher, consulting neurolinguist, and master coach, James Tripp has returned, uh, and we are going to talk about a number of different things, but I really, really, really wanted to zone in on something that's been causing me a ton of anxiety in a lot of ways. Um, and and, I, and I'll get into the intricacies of this, but uh, we're, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in the realm of creativity and and making a difference in the world uh, as well as personal power all all those themes that james talks about but with generative ai it's going to be a very interesting layer of the conversation james thanks so much for coming on the show thank you greg i'm really pleased to be here i always enjoy being on this show because uh you ask great questions you're and you've got you've got a lot of really good thoughts in your mind and i think that's an important thing I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, look, I uh, thoughts. Uh, very interesting. You say that. I mm. I definitely am curious about the way that. Actually, I I'll tell you one of the things I've done with ChatGPT and things like that is I've played around with taking the amount of thoughts that I sometimes have in my head and go, mm. can you can you put some order to this? Right. And it in a weird way, it 
it is helpful, but also when I look at it, I'm like, ah, oh. every every single time I look at something in ChatGPT or even generative AI, as cool as it is, mm. there is still a part of me that's going, yeah, but it feels like this is this this isn't the real thing there is something missing there is something soulless about this this mm -hmm. it, it's like drained of inspiration and i can't tell is it just because it's me and and things are that much simpler than mm. what's actually going on in my consciousness and it's kind of just spitting back like yeah you want to work on your podcast this week and that's Eh, okay, that seems like a very linear thing. Um, mm. Or is it truly just we're looking at this repository of all the information and it's just a pattern-seeking thing that'll never actually be able to generate creative ideas in the way humans are? Um, those are my some of my initial larger thoughts on it. But I'm curious. Let, let me I'll, – I'll take a step back and ask you, um, what was – what was your experience with all this AI stuff? Did it kind of just pop on the scene for you? Had you been eyeing it? I mean, where did where did ChatGPT and generative AI fit in your journey as a creator? Okay, so um, obviously, I think ChatGPT three point five got open to the public. Was it in November last year? Yeah, something like that. And quite quickly, uh, I heard about this. People are saying, you know, this thing, it's incredible. It's insane. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll, let me have a look. It's free. So I went on there. I had a look at it. And the first things that I did is I thought, well, how can I use this, right? Is there is there a way I can use this? So I, I wanted to get it to rewrite some transcripts of some stuff, that some video stuff that I've done. Obviously, I've got hundreds and hundreds of videos, thousands of videos probably out there in the world. And I thought it'd be really good to turn this into written content. Let's see what it can do. And I started to play with it and it did a fair job, but I'm like, mm, that's not quite me though. It's not really what I wanted to say. It's kind of, it's good. It's plausible. It could work as content, I suspect, but I'm not interested in merely producing content. There are specific things I want to communicate in specific ways. Um, so I played with it and I got it to rewrite these things in a variety of different styles, rewrite this in the style of Malcolm Gladwell, rewrite it in the style of David Goggins. And I quickly became, because I was interested in this as a productivity tool. How can I use this as a creator in the world to um, streamline my workflow somewhat? You know, uh, And my conclusion was, I don't think I can for what I want to do, because I am not a content creator, as in what I mean, I create a lot of content, but it is not my goal to create content to be merely consumed. Um, you know, my goal is to create differences in the world through sharing specific things in specific ways and this kind of thing. So for me, it just wasn't a runner in that respect, in that capacity. Um, but it did occur to me, I mean, I, you know, I heard immediately, obviously, like, uh, BuzzFeed is in trouble now. I think they've gone into receivership. But I think BuzzFeed immediately laid off a load of their writers and were switching to ChatGPT 3.5. And for sort of BuzzFeed-style articles and things like that, great. Um, you know, for producing content, I think this is a really important distinction, is producing content versus delivering your message, right? Yes, 
there's a distinction there. Now, we live in a world at the moment, it actually drives me nuts, the number of people that have just accepted this frame online. Well, I'm a content creator. It's like, is that it? You're just a content creator? What, a, what kind of content? And why is it content? Why isn't it a message? Why isn't it a communication? Why isn't it something more, uh, more rich than just content, this sort of lumpy category? You know, so um, I, I think that's an important distinction. And I think it's going to swamp the world with even more content. And I think this is going to push us to a point where maybe ultimately we start to become a little bit more discerning about what we want and what we're consuming and maybe even why we're consuming. And dear listener, why the heck are you consuming this podcast? I want to know. If you get a moment, please go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops, and I want to hear your unique message. How has this show impacted you? What topics are you most interested in? Do you enjoy it? Write it as a haiku. Write it as a Shakespearean monologue. It doesn't matter. I want to hear your unique voice. Don't just, I mean, you could put one word in there uh, at ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops, but whatever is inside of you, that that has to come out. And if it's related to the show, even better, I would love to hear you. It's that time for authenticity again and rawness. Let me know how you feel about the show. I'd love to hear it. And now back to James. Oh my gosh. Yes. Holy moly. Yeah, I I definitely uh I I definitely resonate with that. There is uh, mm, it it feels that well look, already we were living in a world where the there was a proliferation and and I'm on people about this all the time on this show mm. and and maybe it's partly because of my envy for never having committed all the way to doing it this this proliferation of the coaches and the consultants uh, yeah. mm. i mean there are just so many and and i don't even look I, I don't know if i've even asked you your thoughts on uh that but i but it is it already was curious to me that all of a sudden, and especially around 2020 is when you saw this blow up big time with the rise of uh, just not needing to be in person for this stuff. Mm. But it was amazing how many people were saying the same thing about you feeling lost, you, you feeling stuck in life, you feeling lost. You, you mm. do you need do you need you need to align your unconscious with your conscious goals? I mean, all these things that we've heard. It's just millions and millions of people that were coaches, and then a lot of coaches signing people up to become coaches after yeah. their program and it just it became this giant thing and then i would see more ads and websites started looking the same and blah 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 now yeah my initial thought on that was is there even an economy for that does that even exist i mean i know that one of the common criticisms that i hear is that well greg you know it's just a lot of marketing it's a mm. lot of marketing. Not, you, you, can, you can look at all these coaches and think they're succeeding, but look at how much money they're making. Now, that's, that's the cynical side. The other yeah. side of me goes, yeah, but are we 
you know, they, they, we're kind of preached this idea of abundance. Sure, maybe I'm not going to be this person's ideal client, but hmm. what about the people out there who haven't heard of this person before, and all of a sudden they're they're starting to watch uh, this random lady's YouTube videos, and and something resonates with them, and then they sign up. And if that person can get even five of those people, then that means they can get into six figures this year, and they can quit their job. And you are supporting this coach. I mean, let me before we go into the way ChatGPT hits on this, I'm curious yeah. what. What is your initial thought on that? I mean, was there ever enough room for all these people? Does does that even matter? Is that even the question worth asking? I mean, um, because I, I guess what boggled me is how can there just be so much of these – I, I, I don't even know what to call them. Uh, coaching, consulting, kind of like human giving advice to one person mm. or a group of people businesses. Because to me, it seems like people also, it's very easy not to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's an it's an interesting, I mean, I've got so much to say on this. I don't even know where to begin. This is the, this is the problem with this. Um, I've been in this game whatever you call it. I don't like the whole coaching frame. In fact, um, even though, you know, you refer to me as a coach in the intro and I have referred to myself as a coach because some people told me it was a good idea at some point. The first time I ever saw the phrase life coaching was probably like 25 years ago. And I was driving past a place near where I lived and it was called the Letchworth Center for Healthy Living at the time. And they put a new sign up outside with all the offerings they had there, yoga, Pilates, Tai Chi, and five rhythms dance. And there was this thing on there, life coaching. And uh, I'd never seen this term before. And I was just absolutely incredulous, you know, that, that it was just, I couldn't believe that somebody would be so arrogant as to claim to be a life coach. <laughs> this right. was my response. And, and I, I went straight home and I said to my my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, she is now, I said, like, I, I can't, do you, do you know what I've just seen? Just seen somebody offering life coaching. And I just was <laughs> absolutely stunned at this. Um, you know, I thought, what an arrogant prick that person must be or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and then like years later, there I am. I'm, I'm essentially, I've never used the term life coach, but I am in that category largely. And uh, and I kind of got into that by accident in truth, in that I loved NLP and I've been using NLP for a good five years before I ever did a formal NLP qualification because uh, I'm a, I'm a very autodidactic in nature. Um, and I've been really using NLP. I've been doing a lot of modeling and refining my modeling skills and really working a lot with uh, the linguistic packages and things like the Milton model and that kind of thing and, and really using the stuff, doing a lot with it. Then when I trained in NLP, I just thought, I just loved this stuff. Now, to be clear, I didn't train in NLP to get into being some kind of consultant for other people. I was interested in how it served me in being able to create what I wanted to create in the world more effectively, make the differences I wanted to make in my life for myself, for the people who are important to me. Um, but I also hated my job, which I had at the time as well. And I, I, you know, I thought to myself, maybe I could make a living doing something with this. 
So uh, I said to the NLP trainers who I was training with, like, maybe is this something I could do with this to make a living? So I could see they were making a living. They were NLP trainers, right? That was what they did. And they ran mm-hmm. other sort of corporate trainings and things. I'm like, you can make money doing this. This is great. I said, what could I do? They said, well, you could, uh, you could be a life coach, they said. And I was like, what are you kidding? You know, my life's a mess. <laughs> how, am I, how can I be a life coach? And they said, well, that's not important. And they, I remember one of the two trainers said to me, do you have to have had brain surgery to be a brain surgeon? And I'm like, there's something, that metaphor sounds superficially plausible in some way, but actually if you dig a little into it, it doesn't hold up as a metaphor. Um, (laughs) Right. But then there's this whole thing about like, well, am I just, you know, I'd learned all these things about limiting beliefs and stuff like this. Am I just holding myself back with these limiting beliefs? Maybe I could do this, maybe. So I did indeed step into that realm. I couldn't bring myself to call myself a life coach. Um, but, and, and I'm basically I've been doing something in that area ever since. And that is for now, uh, um, since 2008, I walked out of my job in 2008, early 2000 and, um, 2008. Before that, I've been doing it part-time for a couple of years. So I didn't just walk out of my job like crazy. Uh, I made sure I had a, something there now i have since then looked at a variety of different ways to sort of grow my business and i work with different clients in different areas and at various stages i've sort of flirted with the what some people call the high-end coaching area which is the you know become a mega uh, mega selling seven figure coach or whatever this kind of stuff and it never quite sat with me it seemed to me there was a lot of hot air and hype inside of it not entirely it's not that simple to say it's all fake right? it's yeah. not that simple but there's a lot of hype and sometimes that hype creates and then you can look at people who have created with that hype and you go well there's something to it isn't there because they've created stuff i know people that have made an extremely good living made a lot of money from applying you know, marketing concepts, the hype, all of this kind of thing. But I will say they are a minority. The vast majority of people that end up in that kind of trying to make it in that high-end coaching area, they don't make it, right? And I don't consider myself to be Mr. High-End Coach at all. The people that I work with, are like my my private fees are not nearly as expensive as some people's. Now, I'm not the cheapest guy around either, but I'm not the most expensive guy around. You know, I have a modest number of clients. Uh, fortunately, I'm quite a lazy individual, so I don't want to have too many clients anyway. Right. Um, you know, and I make enough money to to find my way through. But it has bugged me often that people decide, and I, I have sympathy for this because this is what people do. They decide they want to be a coach, right? They love it. They're into it. The self-development stuff has really helped them out. They feel their life is better as a result. They love sharing that stuff with other people. They think maybe I could make some money doing this. So they set themselves up as a coach. But then what they start to do is they start to do this sort of performative coachy thing, right? Um, like they look around, they go, well, I'm a coach now. So what kind of thing do coaches say? You know, what what kind of content do coaches put out? So you just end up everybody copying each other because they they, they think I have to put out content to promote myself, right? A promo- this is a big idea, promoting yes. myself. How do I promote myself? How do I promote myself? Well, I need to put this content. I need to have an Instagram. I need to 
It's like, hang on a second. What do you want to say? What do you believe in? What is your message? How specifically do you make differences for people? What do you really care about? You know, forget, um, forget this sort of, let me just say the coachy things. It's like, really, what do you care about? Now, a lot of the time, people, they don't have a message. They don't have anything to say because they're not thinking on that level. They're trying to think about what is it that I, I want to be? Well, I want to be a coach, so I need to walk like a coach, talk like a coach, say coachy thing, put, put coachy memes out. Um, you know, and then it's everywhere, particularly like you said, in the beginning of 2020, I think a lot of people were thinking, right, you know, this big opportunity to change my life right now. And so you get the, the market flooded. Most of those people probably are not making any money. They're looking to project. Well, this is another thing. Like people often speak from where they aspire to be. It's the fake it till you make it thing. It's a very natural human thing. So they think I want to be a high-end coach. So I'm going to speak and communicate like I'm a high-end coach. I'll fake it till I make it. And that'll that'll work for me. Um, I actually think there's a lot to be said for speaking from where you're at, like with, with real honesty, um, wherever that might be, people can create a lot more from where they're at rather than trying to create from where they want to be, because where they want to be is where they're not. It's hard to create from there. It's hard to have a real message from there. It's hard to have any real heart from there. Um, so I'm a big fan of, there's a concept from Wallace Wattles in his book, the science of getting rich, which is. Uh, fill your current place fully. Hmm. And I think that's something a lot of these coaches, wannabe coaches are not doing. They're not filling their current place fully. They're trying to fill this imagined place and come from this imagined place and they're not there. And so on some level, there's a hollowness to it. There's an artifice to it. You know? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. This hollowness. I mean, it really does speak to me and it mm. makes me wonder about, um, well then let, let me, let me flip this and then go to the world of artificial intelligence mm. in the sense that I'm wondering, okay, this is where things get kind of weird for me. And, and I know we talked a little bit about these themes last time, but, uh, if if this is where it gets murky in the realm of the stuff that you talk about in uh, your Nexus program in terms of living as a creative force and and really practical ways of of creating um, something that matters to you in the world. Mm. So I look at ChatGPT and I go, "This is interesting." Um, and actually, <laughs> I've kind of thought about I, I might be giving away some of my secrets here, but but uh, but I will do it. Um, I saw, for instance, a there was a great interview uh, with Jordan Peterson and this guy Brian Homel. Who oh yeah, I just been, halfway through this. And you watch it. I've been following phenomenal. this Brian guy a right. lot in the past month, and I've really enjoyed following him on Twitter. And then, of course, to have him on Jordan Peterson's platform is just mind blowing. Yeah. Um, and I am. We'll get into some of the intricacies of what he's talking about with hypnosis and ChatGPT, which I yeah, think are wow. very interesting. Yes, um, indeed. <laughs> but my thought is this: Okay, well, now that this interview has come out, I typed in. I actually used one of his super prompts. Um, mm. Did I? Yeah, maybe I did. Uh, and I was like, okay, create a curriculum about hypnosis. And prompting ChatGPT, mm. and in three seconds, it spits out an entire curriculum. And I'm sitting there going, you know, 
I've got the microphone. Mm. I, I've got the computer. I've got this thing. I could do what a lot of people are telling me to do right now, which is mm. develop this course, have it write out a script for me, go to Udemy or, or any of these Skillshare websites, put something up right now and become the hypnosis chat GPT expert without any time really spent. Like this Brian O'Mell guy is, has spent time and it's clear that he has some training in in uh, Erickson style hypnosis or NLP yeah. or something like he is yeah. he's he's one of these guys that just has a, a brain that has done a lot of this but I could do it and and again not saying that I haven't trained in hypnosis but but the point is within this particular realm I and I see a lot of people on Twitter doing this too I could very quickly spit out the chat GPT hypnosis course, sell it. And, and that could be just one of the many courses I sell James, because mm. I have other ideas of courses I could quickly throw in the chat GPT. I mean, I could come up with 10 th uh, infinite really, but like 10 ideas right now that I could quickly record a course for, put it out there, see if I can just cash in on this. Yeah. And I cash know him baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like, it's not necessarily, that I well, I guess the question then becomes, do you what what are you actually trying to do in the world? Are you just trying to make money? Or are you actually trying right, to right. say something? But mm. at the same time, I also know, and this is where my brain gets tripped up, I'm going, Yeah, but I know I'll have a lot more free time to mm. say things that I want to say if I figure out a way to financially support myself. So why not use these tools in that way yeah. and put out like a half decent product that some people just didn't think to create um, that probably actually does have some good information. And, and, you know, I, I'm not going to make it just complete crap. Like we know there are people that are established in this field that put out crappy courses. Like I bet mm. I could put out like a mediocre course and probably actually make it somewhat better, which I guess is, a self-belief I need to have. But yeah, I, I guess it's it's a question of now priorities because I don't know if, uh, and I know I put up a, a post on Facebook that you responded to about the gold rush idea. Mm. When When is it worth pursuing a gold rush, I suppose is my question. Um, what, what do you think of all that? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. A couple of years ago, maybe it's a couple of years ago, I don't know. Um, I got this advert come up on... Uh, on one of my YouTube videos that I was watching. And it was a, a woman, she's an English woman who was saying, I have all these books available on Amazon and I'm not an author and here's how much money I'm making every month. Um, I'm like, okay. So I looked at her, her, I watched her free webinar and I almost signed up for her expensive coaching program. But my wife <laughs> being smart went, wait, just have a look at the Trustpilot reviews on that. So I looked at the Trustpilot reviews and I thought, okay, maybe I'll, steer clear of her coaching program. Um, but then I found these two brothers, uh, the Mickelson brothers, Mickelson twins. I don't know if you've seen these guys, um, but they have a book on um, Amazon, like a very cheap Kindle book. And they basically give away their whole business model and show the figures and everything. And they have been for a number of years writing books for uh, Amazon for Kindle and making audiobook versions and making a lot of money. And what they do is they they do the research on what's going to sell well. They do a bunch of, you know, like they, they show their, their method for researching. They find the niche. 
they do uh, well keyword designed t- titles and subtitles. And then under a, a pseudonym, they will create a book outline and pay a ghostwriter to write the book, right? And these twins have got hundreds and hundreds of titles and they're making a lot of money from these books. And they're all under pseudonyms. Now, I looked at this and I'm like, oh, this is just too easy, I thought. Yes. Um, you know, I'm going to, but I, I might give this a swing. And I I never did, but <laughs> I really was considering it at some point. And I talked to my brother about it and he was outraged. He thought it was a morally dubious thing to do. And I'm like, well, you know, people buy these books and th- you don't have to be charging that much for them. But I, it occurred to me when ChatGPT 3.5 came out, I thought those Mickelson boys will be right on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because yeah. they're not going to have to pay the ghostwriter anymore, right? They know how to produce the book outline and just go. Um, so there's, there's unquestionably money to be made. Now, whilst I was going around this loop in my mind, I came up with literally a list of 60 book ideas, 60, 70 book ideas, a huge list of book ideas, which I thought, that would be great, that would be great, that would be great. My problem was, is I legitimately thought that each idea would be great and therefore had a whole host of creative ideas for it. And actually to run that method, you need to be more stepped back from it. You can't get creatively involved. Otherwise it's not that anymore. It's become something else. Yeah, right? you, You've got to be able to sort of like let it go and let the, the product be a product, not something that actually, you know, resonates with your heart or soul necessarily. It's just like, so if I was going to do that, I'd have had to have been sort of breathing going, it's just a product. It's just a product. It's just income. Right. And like, I really thought about this and I thought, well, it's just part of setting up a portfolio. People have property portfolios, people have whatever, you know, to, to create income sources. So I really did think about doing that. And it, this is one of the first things I did when I got ChatGPT 3.5 is I started experimenting with it, basically producing manifestation books. I'm like, and like, what, what did I call one? Like, I said, write a book on manifestation called the crystalline. I just came up with something like the crystalline subjective or something like that. Like it just sounded cool. Right. And it wrote this thing for me, like, and it explained the whole, and it took the, the sort of metaphor crystalline. I just threw it in because it sounded like a kind of word that people might go for the crystalline subjective. Oh yeah. Right. And it came up with a whole like explanation of how manifestation worked through the principles of crystal formation. And like, it's like, whoa, it just really did this crazy creative thing with it. And then I'm like, write me a history of the crystalline subjective. And it wrote me a whole history about it, kind of these Himalayan monks and all of this stuff. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) this this is, uh, this is something I could have out on Kindle by the end of the week, if I chose to do so, which I didn't. I can't tell you why I didn't. However, right, there's a there's a big part of me that, that if I was going to do that, I would absolutely have to go against some some elements of of my own nature. You know, um, I'm not saying go against any kind of moral or ethical things. It's just that I've got this desire to be creatively involved and not just to like I've got this thing inside of me, and I think it's instilled. This is a limiting belief or limiting mechanism. Uh, my old coach, Steve Chandler pointed this out to me. He said to me years ago, James, stop being a working class hero. 
and start being the creative genius that you are. I'm like, ah. So I have a tendency, like if something's too easy, like I just, it's like I can't quite bring myself to do it. It's like a real deep thing inside of me. But I don't think there's any reason why anybody shouldn't um, take advantage of this gold rush. Okay. I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't. I think there'll be an effect to this gold rush, which is why I think it will be a gold rush. And I think that the gold will run out to a certain degree. Um, with regard to you, like if you were doing that stuff, if I was to give you some advice, which I'm not here to do, but I will do it do it anyway. No, please, you please. It, whatever you want with it. My advice to you would be do it under nom de plumes, pseudonyms. Right. right. Because then whatever creative stuff that you really want to do from your heart, your own true messaging, you can always do like, then you'll have all that money coming in. And now you've, you're free. You've, you've bought yourself some freedom to maybe go, do you know what? Here's, here's some ideas that come from deep within me that I would love to share with the world rather than just creating a content, you know, piece of content that people are going to pay, pay you money for. You can then align with your true message. I don't think like it's an either or I think it's, there's a both and you can do that stuff. The reality of the world is we do live in a world where people require money. We require income. Everybody requires income. You know, um, it doesn't have to be who you are. That's just a bit of what you're doing to, to create some income. And then your real work, you can do elsewhere. Another time, another space. Maybe this will create the conditions where you can do your real work, quote unquote. Now, do you think, I, I appreciate that advice, it's very good advice, uh, I'm curious, and I know you did record, you actually recorded a video for me specifically in your Nexus program, which we'll link mm. to, um, but I'm curious if, for the, the broader picture for the audience, um, to me, I mean, look, they're, they're, the way it's working right now, James, is because there's... I mean, ah, this is funny. Okay, the last time I asked you this question, the question was in the realm of, well, it would be so much if, if people are telling me that NLP is the way to learn something quickly and, mm. and I can become a modeler, then why not be an expert modeler first before I took the time to learn hypnosis and learn the language patterns and all this stuff? Why not give myself the advantage? Um, you know, if I was a hypnotist, I, and I'm thinking about time distortion, I would, after every day of training, I would then, I would technically, the best thing I could possibly do for myself, arguably, is go into self-hypnosis, put myself into, uh, you know, two years from now when I've already developed these skills and I'm already out there and just do all that stuff because that's the promise of NLP and hypnosis. That's the, you can do all that. So, so there's the internal optimization of the way you go about something, but now we mm -hmm. have it externalized and that's where I'm going, you know, end of, end of my work day. If I want to then go into this kind of Greg Bornstein creative zone, I could focus on the things that are about my message and, and making an impact on the world. Or I could go to Twitter and see what the latest tool is. What's the, what's the way that, you know, okay, we've heard of time distortion, but what's the next level of time distortion? So you don't even need to do that. You don't even need to, there, there are new tools coming up. And I think that's kind of what is very, uh, I'm, 
the technology is developing much more rapidly than the consciousness around the technology, which mm. I actually think is an interesting field for a mind expert to take and claim as their niche in itself. Um, yeah. But but yeah, so I guess my question is, you know, is there, do you have any thoughts about how not to get too, too wound up in the productivity hacks that AI is, is giving us um, and or is, do you see in the greater picture of it? Cause this is also where I think you might point to, is there a greater purpose in the nonlinear creation of saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to focus on my message and I'm going to spend one month going fully into all this AI stuff, see what comes out of it, and then I'm going to go back to my real work. I mean, I, I know mm. it's not always that linear, but I'm curious, like the overall framework around adapting your consciousness to these things. And do you see that it's all part of the same greater plan for what you're going to create anyways? Well, you know, there's this little bit of business I often end up sharing with clients. And you know, and I end up saying something like, you know, this world that we live in is is artificial to a massive degree. All of it's artificial. People talk about virtual reality. We're already there. Because the world around us, and this is pre, this is pre-AI. I've been saying this for years, right? We evolved to work with a very different environment. And then something shifted in our brain at some point in evolution. We started to be able to manipulate our environment to the degree that we could build an ever more complex environment, not just a physical environment, but a sociological environment as well. You know, so we, we create these really complex systems and really complex, a really complex world that we've collectively created as human beings, which is way, way more complex than the world that we were evolved to deal with. But we created it and here we are. Right. So technology has been outpacing human consciousness for a long time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, who, who is it who said we have uh, godlike technology, but Stone Age, Stone Age. Right. Um, you know, so and, and this is one of the, the threats that comes from something like AI and all of the other stuff that we make. It's like we're making more and more stuff, but our consciousness hasn't evolved to be able to wield that godlike technology and that godlike power necessarily. Um so I'm often pointing this out to clients, like when, if they find themselves a bit like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm confused. Should I do this? It's like, how could you possibly know what you should do? You know, the, the world that we live in is phenomenally more complex, infinitely more complex than the one our brain was evolved to do. And we come into the world, and we know nothing. And each one of us human beings, we're the same in that we're charged with this task of making sense of the world and making sense of ourselves in the world and making choices about how we bring ourselves to bear upon the world. And then where are we making those choices from? What sets of values? Where did they come from? Are they really our values or are they somebody else's values? So the whole thing is incredibly nutsoid complex. So in the end, I actually think that you know, I've got this bias towards people just doing stuff, right? You know, just engage with the world. Just look at what you're doing and go, you know, what would I love to do? What would I like to do? Like even getting away from this idea of, of uh, success. I've had a really hard time getting away from this idea of success myself, because as a, somebody who's worked a lot, 
with people who want to have more success in their life. There's always this sort of aching, itching, quiet anxiety deep, deep down. It says, am I successful enough to be coaching people in success? You know, um, have I been successful enough? Well, I actually, you know, have no clue, but I've created things in my life. And now more and more, I'm like, well, you know, do you know what? I just really, I've gone full circle. I've gone back to my early 20s self. When I was in my early 20s, I used to say, all I want to be able to do is be free to do the things I want to do. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at these days. So I spend a lot of time doing things that are not productive in terms of income, not productive in terms of like the societal markers of success and not even important. Right. In the grand scheme of anything. So a lot of people, they've got this idea like, oh, I should be doing important work. I shouldn't pursue success. I should do important work. You know, well, who's to say what's important? Why? Who says you <laughs> right. should do important work, right? So I mean, like today, I've spent most of this morning uh, working on my boxing and kickboxing skills. Am I ever going to be a professional fighter? No, I'm 50 years old this year. Why do I do that? You know, what? Because I enjoy it. I like it. So in the end, I think, you can move towards anything you want. You can spend time with anything you want to create. I spend time with my martial arts development skills. It, it, it doesn't make sense, economically speaking, to do that, but I spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess my answer to that is I think people, like any activity is, is relevant, is as relevant as anything else. Do you see what I mean? Yes, though I do wonder, and this is a distinction that I, I took from listening to a lot of your audios, is um, there's a difference between simply consuming content mm. and difference making. And I really like difference making as opposed to because uh, I think it is a little it can get a little trippy. I mean, I know uh, I also found Steve Chandler, thanks to you, um, mm. and reading a lot of his stuff and rereading a lot of especially that book Time Warrior, which I yeah. love, love, love. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of uh, it, kind of the crux of it is. Well, if you if you avoid all the stuff that isn't your creative work, mm -hmm. then you are being a warrior. A, a, you are, and I guess you use these metaphors too, a creative force. It's it's choosing to sit down and go, I'm going to create. Um, at some level, do you still think that you have to it's not even that you have to see. This is why. How do you create outside of the success paradigm? I suppose is my question. Right. And that's the tricky one, you know? So for me, um, I do have a bias towards creation and I do have a bias towards generativity and I have a simple crude distinction. Other people, this distinction probably is as ancient as human thought, a kind of higher mind, lower mind, crude distinction. So my higher mind is generative. It creates, it looks forward. What would I love to create? Uh, and it comes from inspiration and this kind of thing. My lower mind is reactive, consumptive, uh, it consumes, it comes from fear. It's a very crude distinction, but it's kind of useful distinction. Oh, yeah. Um, and I make a lot of use of this distinction. You know, I ask myself, is this a higher mind choice or a lower mind choice? I ask myself that question quietly a lot. You know, I'm about to eat, I, you know, go to the freezer and get ice cream. It's like, is this a higher mind choice or a lower mind choice? Now, that isn't to say I'm against lower mind choices. It's just that if like I found 
80 to 90% of my choices in the day were lower mind choices, I might be like, mm, okay, I want to rejig that. Um, the lower mind isn't the demon. It's not to be exorcised. It's just, you know, it's does its thing and whatever, you know. So I, my, my choice is to be in this kind of higher mind, generative, creative place uh, much of the time. Now, often, interestingly enough, Things that can sometimes seem like higher mind choices are not necessarily. So we might think, oh, I was talking to my friend John about this yesterday. He was saying that like a, he, he's very, very good at getting busy because he wants to make sure he makes the income that he needs to make to meet his extensive monthly outgoings. Right. So he has a fear of losing his property and his car and this kind of thing underneath the surface. Right. So it, it, you know, it can turn into a lot of productive activity. A lot of that's quite creative and it puts cool things out in the world that benefit people. But in a sense, it's a sort of lower mind choice because it's like about, you know, it's a fear of a failure, a fear of loss. And maybe even if it's like striving for the baubles so that people will respect you or something like that, that's a kind of lower mind choice as well. And again, that's absolutely fine. I'm not making a judgment on anybody that wants to do those kinds of things. And I've done plenty of that. I know from my own internal signals that ultimately it doesn't bring me fulfillment doing that. Uh, so I do less of it now. But of course, I'm a pragmatist as well. And we live in a world where we need money. <laughs> so yes. so some things get done for money. Um, there's a distinction that comes out of I think it comes out of like the Frankfurt School neo-Marxists, right? I, I'm aware as I say this, a lot of people are going to go, what? What are you talking about, <laughs> neo-Marxists? You know, and the Frankfurt School is that the, the, the Frankfurt School sits under this whole kind of cultural Marxism uh, caricature. Um, and, it, and, you know, it, 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 it's not, there's some truth to that cultural Marxism, that kind of thing. But like the original Frankfurt School thinkers, they were not, what that has blossomed into now, right? Um, they had some interesting distinctions and interesting observations about uh, society and how it was organized, particularly capitalist society or what they would call monopoly capitalism, uh, which they would say was not true capitalism, is not your Adam Smith capitalism. Monopoly capitalism is different. It's where the whole system, government and the corporate system have kind of merged. They're not counterbalancing each other anymore and the um the culture industry gets controlled to keep pumping output out there that, that basically keeps people in what they would call a false consciousness of labor and consumption right so the false consciousness is like well i need to work hard at least eight hours every day um because i need all this money in order to buy more flat screen tvs and a bigger car and all of this stuff right it's not really about anything other than kind of like getting this stuff. But what they point out is, um, and uh, Herbert Marcuse pointed this out, again, like a controversial figure, particularly people who are more quote-unquote right-leaning. Uh, I think this left-right distinction is is busted and really needs to go, but that's a different topic of conversation. Right. Um, but like uh, Marcuse pointed out that you can't just have a revolution I'd like expect everybody to wake up from this conditioning into monopoly capitalism and this into this false consciousness. They won't. 
you know, if, if everyone's given their free time, if everyone gets put on universal basic income, the vast majority of people are not going to do their true work. They're not going to do creative things in the world because they've had a lifetime of being conditioned into this consumer consciousness. So they'll just consume. Yes. Right. They're not going to suddenly do great work. They're not going to suddenly bring their creativity to bear. And so you see this with lottery winners, a lot of lottery winners like, wow, I won the lottery. What am I going to do? Buy stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and then two years later, they spent all the money and, <laughs> and, and their family's fallen apart because of all the arguments about money. And now they're just back to whatever they were doing before. Um, so like, it's, it's a really hard thing. So Mark Hughes, Herbert Mark Hughes is pointing out that it's hard for people to know how they would be if they were freed from laboring in order to consume. But it's, it's very hard to know. And um, so when the, the, what this come, what, what, the reason I'm mentioning this now is because there's this question. It's like, well, what's my real work? There's a good distinction, I think, that comes yes. out of these as well. You know, between labor and work, your work, your work is the stuff that you do because you are shaping your world, right? You're shaping your world versus the stuff that you do, your labor, to get money to be able to participate in the system right totally so there's a, there's a point here right like while we're leaning on the marx thing i'm not a marxist i just want to say i i listen i read a lot of philosophy and stuff from all sorts of different perspectives right i'm not like one that just goes out to seek to reinforce my existing beliefs i usually go and, and go well what what's the what are the people on the other side saying oh yeah totally um, so i you know i'm interested in this and like a lot of people think that marx was about inequality and this kind of thing but Marx was actually about alienation, right? His concern was not inequality. It was alienation. And he had this idea that when people had their labor, their capacity to work and make difference, co-opted by somebody else for somebody else's ends, that that, was, that created a, a sort of psychological state of alienation. But it was bad for them psychologically. He was concerned with people's kind of personal psychological state and well-being right somebody else co-ops your labor it means your labor is no longer available to directly shape the world that you want to live in right and and then the the kind of frankfurt school people talk about this as well in the like if you if you're in a more natural condition and you live in a village for example and the village had, had we people have been traveling say five miles to go and get water from a river five miles away so the village needs a well, right? So you're going to dig a well in the village. And you might not really want to dig a well. You might not be thinking, oh, you know, I'm really looking forward to digging this well. But the well needs digging, so you dig the well. And your work, you see the difference that your work is making as the well gets deeper, right? You get this immediate feedback. You're connected to the difference making, right? The well gets deeper, and then you hit water. And then you finish the well off. And then every day you use that well, and the people around you use that well. Right. So, so what a lot of these people, like maybe Marx and some of the, the uh, Western Marxists of, say, the Frankfurt School, who had a different take on it, what they were really like looking at is, is saying that when you, your labor is taken away and you're no longer using it to directly create and shape the world that you are living in, there's a weird thing that happens, which is unhealthy psychologically. Right. Now, I actually really like that idea. And I don't think it's like, 
you know, it's got nothing to do with communism and all of this kind of stuff. Marx was not a communist, right? Marx was like, he believed in self-organizing stuff. He didn't have a political, uh, he didn't believe in in uh, top-down um, management of the economy at all. He believed in people being free and self-organizing, right? So not communism, not any of that stuff. Um, so, you know, if you look at this, it's very naive. It's like this anarchistic thing. So Marx gets what he deserves by not having a vision for what happens after the revolution. Right, um, right. You know, uh, but but this basic idea, that actually really resonates for me. And I think that we're going to come back to this. And I think that there's something about what's going to happen with this AI revolution that's going to bring us to a post-capitalist era. I do not mean by that for people who are listening, I absolutely do not mean some kind of authoritarian communist system, right? That's a busted flush. Everybody knows it, apart from possibly the World Economic Forum. Um, you know, it, it's it's not, that's not going to work out. But I think that what's going to happen, see, the other thing that Marx pointed out is that capitalism has inherent contradictions within it will ultimately lead to it ending itself. Uh, and that never happened in the time frame that Marx suggested. But I think that he was actually right. And um, I think that AI is going to accelerate that. And it's going to bring us to a post-capitalist era, right? Now, I don't know what that looks like. And nobody knows what that looks like. And the powers that be are terrified of this because they don't know what it looks like. And they like the stuff that they've got. And they like yes. things the way they are. So what they do is they go, well, well, let's try and rescue it. Let's put everyone on universal basic income, right? that's a good idea then we can rescue capitalism because no one's going to have a job anymore because the ai is going to be doing everything right or at least most of everything so um so so once you know once you don't need labor once this in order to have capitalism you've got to have a marketplace you've got to have consumers those consumers have to have money i mean here in the uk british telecom and this is just the uk so we're a relatively small country they've just announced that they're laying off fifty-five thousand jobs to ai 55,000, right? And I'm thinking if that's what they're saying they're doing publicly, what's the real number? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, so, so like, you've got people with no money. Well, how are people going to consume? How are they going to continue to consume? Yeah, right? that's what so, I wonder. Right. So there's no money. So there's no more consumption. So what are they going to do? They're going to go, oh, we've got to prop this up. We have to roll out universal basic income, which I, they've been planning to do for a while. Um but I think they were kind of hoping that they would be able to get some more stuff uh, in, in place. When I first heard the concept of universal basic income, I loved it. Because like the way it was sold to me is like, everybody's going to get this universal basic income because, uh, because we can, and therefore people will be free to do the stuff they find meaningful rather than the stuff they have to do in order to get money. I'm like, rock and roll, that sounds fantastic. Of course, Human beings being what they are, the people that are going to roll this out go, hmm, maybe actually rather than just giving people regular money, we'll give them special money, you know, special central bank digital currencies that we can control this kind of thing. And, you know, then then maybe okay, people won't be working for their money, but perhaps we, you know, there are certain behavioral standards that we will require from people in order for them to get their universal basic income. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so you get like social credit and stuff like that. Now, I don't, I don't want to be on here being some kind of doom monger because I actually think all of this is going to fail. This is the thing that people get don't get about the quote-unquote elites. When you get people that get paranoid about the, the elites and you know all these kind of conspiracy theories and shit. Um, excuse my language. Um, but 
what they don't get is that powerful people are indeed powerful, but they are not in control. Right? That's the thing that people miss. They, mm. make the, they make the assumption that the powerful are in control. They're not. Nobody controls complex systems, right? And they, the social system that we live in, the psychosocial system, the economic, political, cultural, whatever, is a complex system. It's extremely complex. Nobody gets to control that. Powerful people get to mess with it. They get to nudge it and shunt it and try and influence it, but they do not control it. They have impact. I'm not saying you, you know, that they, they have power, but they don't have control. Right. So now in order to bring about what they quote unquote want to bring about, um, they would need to have higher levels of control than they do have. So I think it's going to fail. And I think ultimately, as Nassim Nicholas Taleb has pointed out, there is only one lesson to draw from history. And that is that nobody knows what's going to happen next. Right. That's the only lesson to draw from history. So I think we're at this point right now. I think that we really legitimately are, um, there are forces at play now that will bring about the inherent contradictions within capitalism. And I like capitalism, by the way. I want to say this for any viewers out there who are thinking, this trip fella, he's some kind of commie <laughs> Marxist type, right? I like capitalism. I like it, right? It, it created a world that I, I rather like, I am rather fond of, um, particularly up till the 19, end of the 1990s. I'm old school. I love that world. You know, yes. I love that. To, to keep on rolling on. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is the world is going to change, I think, hugely. And now people, you said right at the beginning of this, Greg, you said um, that, I think one of the things you said in the intro is like, that you, it had been causing you some anxiety or something like this. Yeah. Um, now I get that because like the little bit that I've just done in a rather incoherent way, I've started to tell people that and I've watched their face get really, <laughs> you know, I've watched the terror rise in their face. And I say, look, I'm, I don't have a negative message here. I'm just saying the world is going to change really fast. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change for the, it's going to be strange, strange times. Um, but I think that we may end up, there's a good possibility we'll end up transitioning to a better world where people start to realize, right? They get this kind of shock of like, what, what have we become? What is our life about? So this, this point about consumption, labor and consumption, once we're being consumed, once we're being um, fed endless fodder, AI-generated fodder just to consume, consume more, consume more, consume more. Here's more AI-generated mulch. You know, the Fast and the Furious 75 created at a press of a button. Right. right. Or even, I say that, but that's because Fast and Furious 11 is created at the press of a button. Um, you know, 11 through to whenever, just just roll it out, the whole thing, lock, stock, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then people will be like, do I want this? Right? Do I want this? Think about this, Greg. Think about this. So you mentioned that podcast with uh, Brian. What was his name? Brian. Romel, uh, I believe. Yeah. Brian, yeah. Brian, Brian Romel, something like that. Yeah. And Jordan Peterson, right? Now, we know we've got a couple of real human beings there having a real conversation. Um, and I want to know what they got to say. I rather suspect that if that was an AI Jordan and an AI Brian, I would be a lot less interested, but not by choice, right? There's just something, once we know, 
like I, I like boxing, right? I, when I was younger, I didn't get boxing. I thought it was just a couple of people punching each other. But once you know what you're looking at, you go, you can see the skills and it's like this physical chess match. Um, so I love boxing. I love watching boxing. I wouldn't care. Like if there was a couple of AI generated boxers fighting each other, I wouldn't really care who won. There'll be no, there'll be no interest in that for me. I mean, I might look yes. at the technical skills for a bit and go, well, wow, that's really, really interesting. You know, I, there's a thing online called the infinite conversation. Have you seen that? I've heard of this. It's just a couple of AI philosophers. Yeah. Having a conversation infinitely. <laughs> and and it, it's just not interesting. It's, it's interesting in so much as you go, wow, how cool is this that they say I can do this? But after that, it's like, I don't really care about any of these ideas. Because I know they're not real, right? I think human beings are interested in human things, right? And, and, and they're, not, they're interested in AI at the moment in so much as it's a human creation. It's like, what have we created? What is this bizarre mystery? And they might be curious about some of the content that comes out, but if it's purely AI generated, I don't know. I feel that there's something, there's a, there'll be a sense of hollowness to this. And I think that, let's say there was a situation whereby like a sufficient number of people lose their jobs, that the economy, that the capitalism can't run anymore, right? Because you've got to have enough people in the marketplace with means to buy in order for, co for capitalism to run, right? It, it can't work otherwise. So let's say capitalism is going to stall and governments get together and try and fix it by putting out universal basic income to try and keep capitalism limping along. And so now they don't have to work. People don't have to work, but they're still going to consume. But what they're going to consume now is there's even more than ever. It's just endless, like a fire hose of AI created stuff, right? And of course, that AI created stuff will be linked into clever algorithms that are like playing people's dopamine systems like fruit machines. Um, yeah. And so, so basically you're going to have like, this is my bleak future. And I want to say that I don't believe this is going to happen. And there's a reason for that, but let's just play out the bleak future first before saying why it's not going to happen. Sure. Um, so the bleak future is that like people are on universal basic income and they're basically being kept addicted to AI generated content, right? That's it. We have a zombie economy full of zombies. Uh, consume, consume, consume. Now, in the film, The Matrix, there's a little scene where Agent Smith takes out his earpiece. He's tormenting uh, Morpheus. He's captured Morpheus. He's trying to get the codes out of Morpheus and he takes out his earpiece. He shares this little thing about human beings his philosophy on human beings and he says the first matrix they built was this utopia it was just like pure pleasure it was just pleasure 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 but people's minds rebelled and they woke up they kept waking up from the matrix so they had to recreate the matrix and they said they recreated the matrix at the height of your civilization he says which interestingly enough was around about 1999 i agree with agent smith the height of civilization was 1999 in my biased view um but there's this point about people waking up okay now i work with a lot of addicts i have worked with a lot of addicts in the past and so i've been curious about addiction the interesting thing about addiction is most people 
who have addiction issues, the vast majority of people fix them without any help at some point themselves, right? Yeah. Not everybody, but most people, and some people get help, and some people, they never escape their addiction, right? But a lot of people reject their addictions at some point, right? Particularly if they get to a point where they become like overwhelming. If it's a little bit in the background, they can carry on functioning, but people reject addiction. So I think if you, if there was an attempt to keep everybody addicted to consumption and there was nothing else in the world, and the labor side of it had gone, because here's something else that Mark Hughes points out, right? Mark Hughes points out that if somebody's put eight hours of labor in, in a day, they're tired at the end of the day. And oh, yeah. Are, Right. So they don't, what people don't do when they're tired is more work, right? Like, <laughs> yes. So, so they don't do stuff that's going to have them think or develop themselves or make differences or create. They consume because they're, they're too tired to do anything else. Right. But like, once you, if you try to keep people with no work to do and keep them addicted, well, they'll be, they're going to start getting energy and spark and wanting to do things and create things. And they're going to want to work, but not want to labor. They're going to want to create. They're going to want to difference make. I think inside of all of us is a desire to make differences, is a desire to bring ourselves to bear upon the world and create and shape the world around us. This is where we come from before we got distorted by maybe modern structures and this kind of thing. And I think there's a chance that we will be brought back to this by AI. Right now, just to say something about my bleak picture of people on universal basic income addicted to AI generated crap. I don't think we get that far because I think people will start waking up way before that. They're, people are already waking up to social media. This is the point earlier before we came on this call today, we were talking about Substack. Why is Substack at the moment like a thing that's growing really a lot? It doesn't, it's like it's old school Substack is in a lot of ways. It's a lot of old school stuff strapped together in an interesting way. But people go there because they want to get away from the algorithm. They want to get away from their news feed on other social media sites. They don't want to be fed, right? They want to choose, choose what they engage with. You know, so I, I think, I think things like Substack, um, and, and the declining numbers of people that are on Facebook and these sorts of things, even my daughters who are, who are um, 15 and 17, who have grown up in this world and Snapchat and TikTok, and even they, even they're sick of it. Yeah. You know, my, my youngest daughter said, oh, I got rid of TikTok. I can't believe how much, like, how much stuff I've done. And she like makes films, edits film and, and, uh, and plays guitar and stuff like this. She's doing loads of creative stuff. She's like, oh man, you, you know, she's just 15 and she's grown up with that. And she can see, she knows that that's been taken away from her life. And from creating stuff, she finds genuine fulfillment in. She gets no fulfillment from watching TikTok, but she gets genuine fulfillment from developing her guitar skills and learning new music on the guitar, right? So I, I just think that like we human beings will reconnect to our our true work, our true difference making nature, you know, we're, and and possibly even 
heal that that fracture that like say Marx was identifying when he was talking about alienation, people being separated from their labor and their labor being co-opted to other people's ends. And they get compensated for their labor being co-opted, but that compensation isn't really uh it doesn't really remedy things. Yeah. Holy moly. So this is what you meant by <laughs> that you think this would be too uh this is uh maybe too heavy for your audience. This. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I've got, like, I'll say this, Greg. I'm, you know, I'm a bit afraid. I'll admit. Like, I had this thing. I recorded this podcast and I put it out. And I'm like, should I put this out? Because people who are into my stuff, they are into self development. Like, they, you know, in the self development world, doesn't like dark things. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it doesn't <laughs> like to look at dark things. Uh, so I did put an episode out on my podcast, preemptively called "Self Development and the Three Wise Monkeys." You know, there's this there's this undercurrent in the self development world: see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Um, you know, we just got to think good thoughts, think think what you want to manifest, right? Don't. And and I pointed out, you know, the if you the story of George and the dragon, Saint George and the dragon. You know, you've got to look at the dragon sometimes. Going, there is no dragon; it's just a kitten, right? It yeah. doesn't help. You sometimes it pays to look at the dragon and look at it square on and go, right? I see you. Now come and get it, right? And that way, when you look at the dragon, you see that missing scale on the dragon's flank, right? You know, you you see it. Um, so I think there's an interesting. Uh, I think it is important to look at the world and recognize you're never going to see it as it is. You're only going to see it as you make it up. But there might be an it to see, nonetheless. And and you know, so you want to be able to see it, and you want to be able to meet it, and you want to be able to create with it as it comes this way. And this stuff is coming. So the reason I want to look at it and I want to get to know something of the nature of it as best as I can is because I want to know how I'm going to meet it. I want to know how I'm going to create with it. I want to know what my relationship with it is going to be directly and psychologically going forward. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's interesting that one thing that definitely came to mind as you were going through that, um, that I'm curious about your distinction for, because I think there is one, is the way that people are promoting these tools does, this is what I'm getting sick of, and and it's, I'm partly sick of it, but I'm also, uh, you know, still a human that is... <laughs> curious enough about the the bold promises that a marketer will make and i'm gonna mm. click i can get easily clickbaited i i will say that um mm. but but <laughs> it's but but the reason is it's because a lot of times on the other side of the clickbait that i'm clicking on they're actually now with ai is something interesting and yeah. one of the things that i see a lot of especially on twitter is if you've been using chat gpt for you're behind. Here are 10 new tools that you need to be checking out right now. And there's just a lot of this stuff, which then puts it into the paradigm that I'm constantly um, in a battle against, which is this notion of worth. And I think this ties back to value and and getting out of this kind of uh, capitalist frame, though I though mm. I don't really know how. Um, is you know what is what is worth 
doing. I think that's what you were saying with productivity too. What is worth your time? I mean, I am so, and for a variety of different reasons, familial, uh, just social, cultural, where I grew up, stuff like that. There is a lot of, yeah, but is that really worth doing? Mm. Is that worth it? Should you, what's the worth of spending 10 hours looking at uh, generative AI content? And I, I just think to myself, if I could get if there was another way, and I know I have some messages, I, I don't know if I would boldly stand on top of a soapbox and say, you know, this is the message of Greg Bornstein in open loops and da 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 I know there is, there is something going on here, but hmm. it, it's not fully developed yet, and, it, and it's certainly not developed in a way, uh, or at least uh, it, it's a battle between what I'm trying to create here and this, yeah, but... But, you know, I mean, is this going to is this going to be a substack people are going to want to pay attention to? Do you even want to develop these writing skills? All those kind of questions of doubt in my head. Um, and is it even going to be worth it? Should you should should it because the, your question makes my brain then go, yeah, well, what is if if this is how we predict that? AI is is the effect it's going to have. Um, and at the end of the day, it's all about doing this core creative thing that that human beings are are quote unquote meant to do, then I just want to jump and go all the way towards that because that feels like the only thing that is actually um, well, paradoxically worth doing right so, yeah. uh I, i'm curious you know what what are what are some frames that we can take from this so that we're not constantly just in a realm of of measuring different creative intentions against other creative intentions mm. yeah so the, the first thing i would say about that is that question you know is it worth doing and i think it's really interesting that you noted that as being part of your your shtick, you know, your inner shtick. Yes. Um, uh, you know, because I'm a big advocate of people becoming better witnesses to their own processes. You know, when looking at what is a question like, is it worth it? You know, is it going to be worth it? What does that create in you? I know what that kind of thing creates in me, which is like stalling, basically. It just stops stuff mostly. Like, is it worth yes. it? Because I can't know the answer to that. It's a sucker's game question. Yes. You know, suckers game to me. You'll know this because because you you're familiar with my stuff. But people listening, suckers game is any game you can't win. Like if the coconut's nailed down, you can throw as many rocks at it as you like, and you'll never knock it off like the uh, the, the stand. Um. So like certain games you can't win, like games where mental games where people go, well, I need to like the what I call the myth of the right decision. Like, am I making the right decision? People do this. Well, how could you know? Because the only time you can know whether something's the right decision is when the fruits of it pay off in one way or another, and that's in the future, and you can't know that now, right? And even in the future, you can't know it. You just judge it by whatever criteria you choose to judge. So it seems like a smart question, like, is this the right decision? But actually, it's, an, it's a dumb question because it has no answer. It is unanswerable, yeah. right? Um, and, and in a sense, like, is it worth it is a version of that. Is this the right decision? You know, um, so you, you don't get to know. Now I do this kind of stuff to myself all the time. So I'm like, you know, what does that even mean? Is it worth it? Um, 
it doesn't really mean anything. It's like it's it's a Wittgensteinian pseudo question. So Ludwig Wittgenstein had this point about questions. Real questions have answers. Hmm. Right. A, a question that seems like it should have an answer, but when you look deeper is unanswerable, is in fact a pseudo question. And he pointed out that most philosophy is pseudo questions. Uh, so like in his later work, Philosophical Investigations, he actually framed that as being therapy for philosophers. Um, so, yeah, is it worth it? I think there's a trap in there, and I think it does come from that conditioning as well, because worth it by what criteria? Like, I do this all the time. I used to be like, I can't really spend, is it, it's, it's not worth me spending that much time on my martial arts because I'm never going to make a lot of money from it in the future. But I'm never right. gonna, or, I, or I'm never going to, like, win a world title i'm too old for that or, or whatever it's like so i have to get away from that uh, speaking for myself um Al, albert camus the french philosopher and writer he had a he did a rendering of the myth of sisyphus he pointed out that you know the myth of sisyphus sisyphus rolls the rock up to the top of the hill then it rolls down he rolls the rock up to the top of the hill and he's this this endless task and people talk about the you know, this is a Sisyphean task. It's like this futile, pointless thing and how awful it must be. But Camus points out that it's not awful until Sisyphus asks himself, what's the point? Right? Yeah. Until he has an existential reflection on it, he's just immersed in his work. Right? He has to sort of step outside and put this broader kind of left hemisphere frame around something that actually, you know, doesn't necessarily have that. And like if Sisyphus is just, you know, involved in his work and, you know, he enjoys the texture of the boulder and feeling his muscles working and enjoying experiencing his strength and all of this kind of thing, right? He could be doing all of that and then suddenly go, but is it worth it? Boom. <laughs> and the whole thing bursts. Whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and that's a you know it's an extreme example of that kind of Sisyphus thing. Like, so in all honesty, I don't know in my life if anything is worth anything, if anything is the right decision. I don't know, don't know any of these things, and I've stopped trying to know. So I just do the things I do because those are the choices I make, and I pay attention when I do them to what that creates in my world and my life, and I look and I think, do I want? you know, am I liking this or any adjustments I want to make, you know, and, and if I feel there's a sense of lack or something like that, I want to know, is that a real sense of lack? I mean, do I actually just literally need some more money now because there's food to be bought? Or is it that I'm just feeling like I haven't got this abstract concept called financial security or something like that? You know, so I think in the end, like there's this thing about like immediacy and it's like, what am I creating now? This is why I love this idea of, of of your work creating something now in the world it's like literally shaping the world you live in and the first place that the world you live in gets shaped is in your experience of it right huh. yeah you know like so if i if i frame something in my mind right now in a way that crushes the life out of whatever i'm doing then i just did a bit of work in my mind that created detriment in my world in my immediate world in my immediate subjective experience right you know like 
for some reason, it take martial arts. I'm dr- I'm driven. I don't know why. I can't tell anyone. I can't justify. Somebody said, "Well, why are you doing that, James? Why do you put so much time and energy into your martial arts?" Because I feel compelled to. That's that's all I can say, right? And if I get in the way and I question that, I won't do it. And that that's fine. If I don't do it, I'll do something else. It's not a big deal. So instead I go, well, I will do it then. I'll choose to do it. Maybe something, even if I go, like I catch myself going, maybe something will come of it at some point. I'm just falling back into that trick of thinking it's only worth it if it gives a certain payoff. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So so I've got this kind of awareness for that in my own life. I'm not saying anyone else should change that, but it, it is interesting how we can derail ourselves from engagement in something that might create, because my engagement with martial arts does create it creates a higher level of martial arts skill. It creates, it probably creates meeting people. It creates all sorts of stuff. I don't even need to justify it by what it creates, but it does create. If I didn't do it, it would create nothing. Maybe I'd do something else, but maybe I'd just be caught up in a load of thinking about, well, what should I do? What should I do? What's the right thing to do? What's the, then I do nothing. And that yeah. creates nothing, right? Apart from more, more thought loops and that kind of thing. So, you know, um, I don't really know what I'm saying here other than like, in the end, we're always doing something. We're never not doing anything. Nobody, nobody ever does nothing, even if they're sitting there and they think they're doing nothing. Have you, have you tried doing nothing, Greg? Have you ever tried it? <laughs> uh, in, in limited capacities, yes. Right. I think it's a really interesting thing to do. I think it's actually more interesting than meditating. Hmm. Because meditating is an activity, right? People go, oh, I've got to go and do my meditating, right? They're actually choosing an activity to engage in called meditation, right? So they're not really doing nothing. They're meditating. Yeah. Like, you know, people go, well, meditation is really hard. Yeah. Well, try doing nothing. <laughs> now, <laughs> then you'll know hard, right? Because um, you're always doing something. So once you know you're always doing something, the question is, well, you know, how am I going to steer that something? How am I going to shape that something? And uh, it creates what it creates. I'm going to make some evaluation about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing at some point. You know, this is why, like, when you were talking earlier about, like, should I do this thing with the AI? I'm like, yeah, rock and roll, go for it. And if you said, will it be worth it? I'd be like, I have no idea. What does that even mean? Right, right. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, one thing you bring up that I, I, I'm i curious your take on, because I, I don't know if I've ever heard you discuss this before, but um, in, in the context of spiritual awakening, and I do think this is related in the sense that if we do get to the point where what you were saying about this notion of that AI is going to push us to potentially doing the things that were, uh, you know, that are inside of us, latent that we want to create in the world. This, I, I suppose it's. I, I won't even call it because right now people use the phrase the creator economy, but I, I might say the the real creator economy. Maybe even wipe out economy. Maybe the mm. renaissance. Um, it's interesting you say that because I feel that that is a hinted at and discussed a lot. In the spiritual community, mm. um, and it's and it was talked about in 2020, and it didn't really 
pay off. I mean, it, that, that is kind of one of the, the sadder things for me about the whole exchange of, of existence we had there. It, they, there mm-hmm. were a lot of spiritual people right off the bat that said, oh, this is going to be great because when people are locked down and they no longer have the things that they were robotically just doing with their lives this matrix the matrix gets shut down temporarily it's Mm. going to force people to sit with themselves and i think it did for a lot of people i mean i created this podcast out of it um but yeah i i think a lot of people went okay well if i don't have traveling and going to fancy nightclubs or just going to nice restaurants and spending time with these people that i don't really care about that much but it's just what i have been doing if they don't have their patterns they're forced to do something else and a lot of people anticipated that this would be kind of like the dawn of a new age Mm. um curious you know i mean i think people in power did a lot to just i mean i know it being in new york city it feels a lot of the same it feels like we kind of went back to doing the same stuff um so i suppose on one level kind of curious about if ai is going to actually have staying power with regards to pushing people to act confront what they want to be doing but uh i suppose the other thing is you know when, when you talk about doing nothing and stripping down everything um you hear a lot from spiritual people that oh you're not ready for, they they give you a dire warning before you go off and meditate by yourself in the forest for 2 years mm. um they they say this is going to be one of the most difficult things you ever do. You're everything's gonna come up. All the trauma, all the they, sometimes they don't even say that. They just say it's going to be so painful. So the mm. idea being that doing absolute nothing is often correlated in spirituality with this extremely trying journey of self. Um do you buy that? Do you think we need to go through that? Is that is, I, I, in all your experience with change work and people self-actualizing and whatnot? I mean, what is how much do we need to sit in this nothing and really confront ourselves in in such an extreme way? Well, I don't like. I'm not a big meditator at all. Like, um, and when I say doing nothing, I just find it an interesting experiment. Like if I'm, if I'm thinking, what should I do? What should I do? I sit down and do nothing. And then it's really hard and something will go boom, and I'll spontaneously find myself doing something. I'll, it's sort of one of the best ways to spur myself into generative action is to try to do nothing. Um, so, but aside, aside from that, I think I, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day whose name I shall not share. Um, who recently went on a weekend retreat with some other guys and did a lot of psychedelics. Um, And uh, he's not got a lot of experience with it. And he told me that he had done a load of mushrooms and an LSD, big dose of LSD on top. I'm like, you did mushrooms and LSD (laughs) at the same time. Like who's, who said this was a good idea. (laughs) And, um, Anyway, so he had like a bad trip. He had a really bad trip. He got super, 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 super paranoid. So it was really interesting because he got very, very paranoid. He'd never had this experience before. I used to do a lot of acid years ago, so I could relate to this. And he said that he like got into this delusion that basically all his friends were actually 
running a sex cult and they'd kidnapped him and they were going to do unspeakable things to him. Um, and he said it was really interesting that that his um, that everything they said, just his mind turned it into more evidence for the fact that it was indeed what they were going to do to him. And you know, it's, it's kind of funny. He was laughing about it afterwards, but it was interesting. Yeah, it was kind of like quite quite dark. He said at one point they all tried to ground him, so they all sort of knelt down around him, surrounding him. He's like, "Oh my god, you know they're coming for me," and like, and he's he was like, "You you are yeah." He was, started calling them assholes and things like that. And then one of them said, no, you're the asshole. And he's like, oh, I'm the asshole. They're going to, you know, he, he turned that into some kind of sexual metaphor. Right. Um, but he, he said like it was, it really showed him how, if you believe something, I know this was in an extreme case, if you believe something, how your mind can turn everything into evidence for it, you know, and he's like very curious about how much that's going on in everyday life. But that's not why I'm talking about this particular uh, particular episode uh, with him. There was a reason. What was your question before? Oh, oh, it was about um, the the force confronting yourself as a means right, to right. getting yes, to your yes. most generative self. Right. So, like afterwards, the wise people in you know, some of his wise friends said, "Oh, you're not ready for this. You know, you mustn't do this again." You've got unresolved trauma, they told him. This is why you had a bad trip, because you've got unresolved trauma that you haven't worked through, and you have a lot of unresolved anger inside of you. I'm like, yeah, maybe it was just a big dose of chemicals. You know, maybe it wasn't, didn't mean what you're being told. And is that a helpful thing for him to be told that he's now got unresolved trauma and deep work that needs doing and all of this? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe it was just a big bunch of chemicals. One thing I know for sure is those people don't know but they think they know, right? <laughs> yeah. They think they know. They think definitely you've got unresolved trauma. This is how it's going to be for you. Um, and this is one of the things in the world of psychotherapy is why most psychotherapists scare the crap out of me because they're telling people things all the time. They're priming people, they're framing stuff, and they think they're just speaking truth. They think they're telling somebody the way it is instead of setting them up to believe a certain thing. And the question is, is that thing useful? So primes exist. If if somebody says, this is going to be really hard, right? This is going to be like the, one of the hardest things. You're going to have to do this deep work. You're going to have to struggle with this. Maybe that got created. You know, maybe it didn't need to be that way. Maybe it isn't always true that everybody has to confront, confront and face their quote unquote trauma. I mean, even trauma is a frame. Yeah. Right. You know, it's not, it's a metaphor. It's not a, a reality. Um, now I'm not trying to play, you know, play stuff down. People are complex. There's all sorts of stuff going on. What I'm saying is that people are not the simplistic explanations that are often laid on them by people who have a particular psychotheology or, or whatever, or spiritual theology, right? Maybe it'll be that way. Maybe it won't. So I don't think anybody that says here's how it has to be done. Here's what needs to happen. Here's what you're going to experience. Here's what you're going to have to do. Here's what you're going to have to face. Mm, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe there are other ways. There are always other ways. So yes. And you know, this is, and we won't go too far down this rabbit hole because I know it can go into another completely different direction, but I do want to talk about a recent development because for, for you in particular, because I've uh, wanted to know what kind of 
what what your updated thoughts are on this. And it reminds mm. me of uh, when people talk about the psychoanalysis um, in in Jacques Lacan and his return to Freud. I feel like you're doing that with NLP. Um, right. I remember with NLP. Yeah, I even asked you a question about it, and you were like, yeah, well, I don't even I, – I don't really use traditional NLP frameworks. And then all of a sudden, I see mm. on your hypnosis training and even in uh, the Nexus, um, you're, you're returning to NLP yes. in light of people saying – that well you know those guys kind of overextended the computer metaphor and mm. in light of artificial intelligence being this metaphor externalized in some ways though focusing on different aspects but but i think it's a very interesting time to mm. return to neurolinguistics yeah. um and I, I i don't know it seems like it's just kind of happenstance that maybe it happened around the same time as generative ai but i'm curious what is it about neurolinguistic programming that has you going back into it again well it's kind of interesting um what is it specifically I, whatever i tell you is a story it's not the truth because there's, there's a dozen different ways that i could organize these events in my mind or whatever um but partly it's been actually since kind of coming back out of the lockdown my youngest daughter particularly had a kind of difficult time perhaps adapting back to being out in the world uh, she got somewhat used to her cocoon and you know i'm like oh this is a problem um she's not handling the world well and what i found is particularly with her because i don't have a formal sort of coaching client relationship that I, in order to get the sorts of shifts happening with her, and there were many, and it wasn't about like trying to reprogram her or change her. It's just about helping her meet moments and, you know, become, come out of those moments uh, victorious, so to speak, and accrue a lot of victories. And I found myself using a, a lot of strategic and tactical kind of NLP stuff. Right. Or, or neurolinguistics, I prefer the term neurolinguistics because I have a broader view. I include in that a lot of the stuff from the Palo Alto uh, brief therapy group. Hmm. Um, so to me, that's always informed my NLP. And if people are listening and don't know what that is, that's a bunch of people that, that Gregory Bateson was involved with who were basically looking at the same people that Bander and Grinder were looking at. And they built models around what people like Virginia Satir was doing, and particularly Ericsson. They'd been looking at Ericsson since the early 60s and figuring out how Ericsson worked with his strategic side of it. They weren't so much interested in the hypnosis side of Ericsson, but Ericsson's strategic therapy stuff. So I got this NLP strategic thing in the background, and I was starting to do some really cool stuff with my daughter on the fly, right? In situations where I couldn't plan and I had no planning, and I have many, many of these instances. I shared one or two um, publicly, but I had a lot of these. And I'm like going, whoa, that was cool. And like my wife's going, that was really good. Like, and I, she's, I, and I didn't know ahead of time what I was going to do. And it's like, I'm looking at myself going, whoa, that was genuinely cool. It's like, who did that? 
it, yeah. almost like somebody else had done it. And like, and I'm like, how do I know how to do that? And and I sort of like I've I've taken for granted so much of what I've internalized. And um and it's so that really brought me back to valuing it. And then it kind of took me back in time to how much of a difference it made for me. Because before I got into a lot of other self-development stuff, I was like, I was neurolinguistics all the way for like about six or seven years. Um, and I really changed a lot of myself and my life and my ability to engage with the world. And it's like, I remembered all of that again, because it had kind of got in a way eclipsed by other things that I got into later on, but I wouldn't have been able to get into those things in the same way if it wasn't for the NLP. And I recognize that NLP, neurolinguistics, whatever you want to call it, that's like my core. Okay, it's the same in martial arts. I do a lot of martial arts. I do wrestling, I do boxing. At the moment, I'm wrestling, boxing, Baguashan. So I, I'm doing sort of combat sports stuff. But my at, my at the heart of it is, like people will laugh at this because they don't even think of it as a martial art, but it's Tai Chi. Right. Tai Chi is my base. Everything relates back to Tai Chi. Even when I'm boxing, there's a lot of stuff I do in boxing, which is purely Tai Chi based, um, particularly with regard to manipulating people's balance and stuff whilst infighting and that kind of thing. So, um, so I realized that this is, this is sort of like my base and it's where I come from, but I also, I also, um, in a sense, it's like, I've spent a lot of years going, well, what am I about? What am I about? Like, I've got to come up with something that somehow explains me. And I can't do it uh, because I'm a human being and therefore I'm complex. And this is the same challenge that anybody faces. So in trying to go, well, what am I about? What's my stuff really? I mean, it's not really NLP anymore. It's like, well, who gives a crap? Why don't I just call it neurolinguistics? own that as like its origins and say, well, you know, I'm not an NLP purist because I'm not, there's a lot of things I'm critical of in quote unquote classic NLP, but that's just where I come from. Now it is interesting in this time of AI because, you know, these large language models, they are models. They have modeled language and linguistics and how, how people talk and they've got all this content in there, but they're modeling the patterns as well. And it's interesting as well. Like this is a large language model. Nobody built this to be a super intelligence. They built it to be a large language model. Yes. Right. And and something that actually Jordan Peterson mentioned in that interview with the, Brian uh, Rommel. Yes, Brian Rommel. Brian Rommel. Right. He said like he said something like I'm going to go back and listen to this again. He said like. Um, this is like the ultimate sort of postmodern machine because the postmodernists, which would be a big influence on NLP, and you know, because this is the whole era of history in which it was being developed, the postmodernists looked at everything as being about language and how language relates to itself, right? You know, you get the, uh, like if you go back to de, de Saussure, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, the original structuralist. His idea was that language was a system of signs and the meaning of those signs consisted in the relationship to all the other signs, right? Not the relationship to the world, the relationship to all the other signs, right? Yes. This is like the, the, the kind of origins of what people generally call postmodernism, right? So it's interesting that, and, and Peterson's saying that basically ChatGPT4 is just language it's no there's no embodiment there's no 
relation to the world beyond language. It's built intelligence out of language alone, right? It's built reasoning and intelligence and an intelligence that we can recognize out of language alone, not out of embodiment, not out of a relationship to a physical context or anything like that. Right. And it's like, so, so if you take something like neuro linguistic programming, that linguistic side, it's like how much can be done with language? How much is language or the, the sign, you know, the, you've got the signifier and the signified in uh, de Saussure's system. Um, and the signified is not necessarily a thing in the world. It's a concept. You've got the word and the concept. You know, it's just like, it's interesting that people can, because it's been this big embodiment movement recently. People are going, oh, you know, it's all about what you embody. And I'm not saying that's not relevant. That's a big part of my work as well. But I am curious as to how much of our intelligence and our reality shaping capacity is related to our, our linguistic and conceptual system, definitely our conceptual system, but how much the linguistic side of it enhances things. So I think it's starting to like give us an insight into intelligence and creativity and generativity and how that relates to language so i love the language side of neurolinguistics the two things i love about nlp neurolinguistics is the modeling there you go that fits with large language models and the linguistics my goodness me we just built a neurolinguistics machine you know it models yes. and it uses language and it builds these models linguistics it's like whoa it's crazy it is crazy from an nlp perspective it's particularly crazy as well the stuff that brian was saying about how the people with the skills to create the prompts that are going to really get the most out of ai are people that come from the sort of non-stem fields of psychology of like literature of philosophy and I assume, because he was talking about hypnotizing chat GPT-4, he would include things like Ericksonian hypnosis and neurolinguistics and these kinds of things. You know, isn't it crazy that you can hypnotize the mofo? Yes. <laughs> it, it's nuts. Um, so, yeah, it is an interesting time. And I don't really know how the these things fit together. I also think there's a resurgence of, um, to me, neurolinguistics nlp there's sort of like two sides to it maybe three sides to it if you include the modeling but let's put, move the modeling to one side on the one side you've got this interest in epistemology in the gregory bateson sense by that i mean literally how we create and structure our reality how we make sense i think sense making is a better term than epistemology the way bateson uses it but so that's one side of it and then um the other side of it is like this cybernetic communication feedback loops um and these these feedback loops and this sense making what that enables us to do is it enables us to create richer more adaptive responses to the world around us and i believe that as the world changes and changes faster it becomes ever more important to develop your adaptiveness your ability to adapt your ability to work with the novel to create with the novel and i think that the, at the heart of NLP and neurolinguistics, like what I would call real NLP, not the collection of techniques that people usually think of as NLP. I think at the heart of, of that, NLP has a lot to offer people in developing like better real-time adaptive responses to novel stimuli and you know different perturbations within the, the system as they come up. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I know that, um, this could be another much longer conversation, but, but speculating on the way hypnotists and NLP practitioners in particular could use these models. I mean, I've definitely thought about it. I've thought about the idea that, okay, you know, you have people that spent hours and hours and hours, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, they supposedly they're they're spending all these hours analyzing Erickson and sitting with him, sitting with transcripts and and identifying these things. I mean, mm. who's to say that you couldn't create a bot? Now look, I I this is also assuming that you, you we're sticking purely with the language component of this. I know that there is every single time, uh, you know, it's almost a cliche in training that people go, oh, everybody's looking for the words, but but were you looking at what Erickson was doing? And I know you talk mm. about this too. You gotta, there is an embodied piece of it, sure. Mm. Um, but I will say that I think there's already enough. I mean, maybe uh, maybe you think we can we can't separate it. I don't know, but my thought is this. You could look at, say, my top example here. Again, I'm giving away secrets here to the crowd, but mm. work with me. Um, I, I want to do this with Bandler's work. Like, mm. my thought immediately was take everything Richard Bandler's done, and especially his public appearances, his speeches, his seminars, um, take all of that and put that into the large language model, give it the context of hypnosis and and nested loops and all this stuff already have it trained on that and then take what bandler's done and really then isolate in the same way that he did for erickson um and john did with erickson as well um and and come up with you know the patterns and techniques of richard bandler that book I feel yeah. it could be done. I feel like it could be done much easier. And I don't feel like people have, I mean, people always talk about, you know, you watch those uh, old seminars of him and you just kind of either submit or you start to study the intricacies of the language patterns. And and mm. some people would even say it might not, there might not even be that much there. This unconscious installation thing is, it's, he, he could just be going off and doing his own thing and we're giving him more credit than we are. But But assuming that, there is something going on there, mm. and we're going to build a model from it. I mean, wouldn't this be the ultimate way to to at least give us a head start with that? What an amazing opportunity we have to look at some of the most skilled practitioners of storytelling in a hypnotic language and, and come up with models from it. Yeah, I think that would be an incredibly interesting thing to do, an incredibly fruitful thing to do. Um, you know... This isn't what you're saying, but it's what's jumping up in my mind right now. Like when you're talking about Bandler and some people going, well, maybe he's not that skilled. Maybe he's just doing this stuff. And then people ascribe, yes, you know, these results to it because they bought into the whole frame and all of this kind of thing. Um, actually, this relates to this, this thing I was saying about working with my daughter covertly and getting really big shifts happening because like, in a lot of my work, I talked about framing all the time, like the importance of framing and how much gets created in the frame. And I still believe that framing is massively powerful. And But like what I realized is that I was getting a lot of shifts happening with my daughter, very fast, effective shifts. Yes, I was doing framing on the fly, but it was 
all strategic and tactical rather than like built on some bigger ritual that there's some buy-in for and all of this kind of thing. And all of that stuff, the strategies, the tactics, these kind of things, they're things I learned from people like Richard Bandler. You know, and in a sense, I'd spent a lot of time using that inside of the context where people buy into the frame. Oh, I've come for NLP coaching. I've come for whatever, right? They bought into a frame. So you can never really be sure. Is it just because they've got some expectancy of some kind of outcome? Did we really create that shift? That's why I've enjoyed working in the world more. Um, that's why my pod, my new podcast is called Agents of Everything. Because it comes from the idea of being an agent of change in the world, not an agent of change in the office where there's an explicit frame or in the training room where there's an explicit frame that people can buy into. Um, that's not what you were talking about right there. You were talking about modeling and creating models. And I think that's a very, very valid thing. And I do believe, because there's two sorts of modeling, right? There's when you learn modeling and you learn to sort of do, I learned modeling explicitly. I explicitly learn implicit modeling from John Grinder. Um, so a lot of the modeling that I do, I don't build out of that codified models that I can then teach to people like the meta model or the Milton model, which are explicitly codified models uh, that, that bypass the embodiment side. I do think those kind of models and clean language, by the way, is, is the best example outside of Banner and Grinder's work of a, of a really exquisite piece of linguistic modeling. Um, I, I can't see any reason why chat GPT-4 cannot be used to really super streamline that process. Yeah. You know, I, I, in order for Banner and Grinder to do it, Grinder needed all his linguistics knowledge to be able to build the meta model. Totally. You know, he didn't come up with, he didn't go in with no frameworks or anything like that. This is why Bandler went to Grinder. It's like, help me make sense of what we're doing. You know, so I, in a sense, like Bandler goes to Grinder because him and Frank Puslik are doing this awesome work with uh, Gestalt therapy, having quote unquote modeled um, Fritz Pearls, although Frank Puslik says, well, I just call it copying. Uh, right. But, you know, so they copied slash modeled uh, Fritz Perls and they're doing great work, but they didn't know what they were doing or how to explain it. So story goes, Bandler says, could you come and help us work out what we're doing so we can teach it better? And Grinder's like, I've got no interest in that. So Bandler had to talk him around. And then when he saw it, he became interested. But that's because he had ways of rendering that up in a way that could be taught, formalizing it. So in a sense, what you're talking about is instead of like Bandler went to Grinder to help him, you're just talking about going to ChatGPT. ChatGPT is your Grinder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be now, look, and, and to kind of uh, put this all together, I wonder then kind of the extremes of this, and this is again, this uh, kind of the catastrophizing mind I, I naturally am conditioned to have, but it then makes me go, okay, please have there be something in the human spirit that is is uh mm, i i don't want to say the word worth but it's not worth it's it's uh at least um i guess 
appreciate it. I think this is what you were saying before, because in the context of, you know, everybody's going to get sick of AI generated content when they when they want to listen to a conversation like this or Jordan Peterson and Brian, uh, you know, it's mm. it's there's something is there. I, I don't even know. I, I feel at this point in my life, I have to have faith that mm. there is an intangible thing beyond programming processes because i'm sitting here going well hypothetically if i can then put in these expert prompts i mean one of my favorite prompts that they have in this chat gbt is the uh you're a university professor level expert in the pareto principle mm. and you can take any topic and and pareto principle it so that people mm. can learn the most important stuff i'm going oh wow okay so we could do that that is in a sense time distortion in a way mm. um you can you can learn everything i mean if somehow we live in a world where and again i know this is kind of assuming that humans have this capacity but let's say i do have the ability and everybody starts having the ability to model successful approaches we start having a lot of richard bandlers watching around walking around and then you say well let me become a comedian and you model comedians and then you can isolate that it's like everybody can learn how to optimize themselves to create and become the person that they want right. again i don't think this is going to happen what is left what right, is the great. intangible Look, thing we have left here's something i'm going to point out i think the meta model is brilliant right I think it's brilliant. And I, I've just retaught it recently in my online deep apprenticeship. And I'm like, and it's the first time I've explicitly revisited it for a long time. I used to be an NLP trainer and I used to teach it in a reasonably stock way. And I'm like, I realize now as I go back through it, how much I have done with it, right? Um, how much it's kind of informed me in different and creative ways. And it's my creativity with the meta model that actually makes it a valuable thing for me. Yes. Most people, most people that learn the meta model just use it horribly. <laughs> yes. To upset and, and annoy and irritate people. Right. So it doesn't, it, it's got value, but it doesn't have it, something has to be done with it. it has to come alive inside of a person right you know i'm thinking of something that ian mcgilchrist said in the master and his emissary that always struck me he said anything that the left hemisphere creates or confabulates has to be handed back to the right hemisphere to bring it to life right so i think that anything that chat gpt creates any model it creates or any model that another human creates right the meta model the milton model whatever it's only once somebody takes it and they explore with it and they develop skill with it and then they have different ideas about it and they make it their own. Um, and then they forget they even learned it and they go beyond it, which is what happened for me with NLP. And that's why I've sort of started to not talk about it so much. Um, you know, I think that's where the human side comes in. So this is one of the things about ChatGPT that changed for me. Initially, I was trying to get it to do things for me. Right. That's what I was trying to get it to do. And it was very unsatisfactory for me when I was trying to get it to do things for me. When I started treating it as a creative exploration partner, then I'm like, oh, this is gold. Right. Not because I'm trying to get it to do something for me, but I'm getting it to feed my mind. Right. 
I'm, I'm using it as a generative thinking partner, not because I want answers from it, but because I want stimulation, interaction, questions, connections, possibilities, all of these sorts of things. But ultimately, I'm going to bring all of those to life within myself. Um, and it's going to change me and my engagement with the world. So I think that's that's the way that works. I think it can genuinely be a powerful tool for self-development, for self-transformation, um, for people who know how to use it, for people who wait for it to do something for them or hope that it's going to do something for them because they ask it to. I think, yeah, they'll get some results, but they won't be of the, the same quality. So there is something to it. There is something to the human side of it. Yeah. So look, I mean, <laughs> uh, to to put it, you know, to give it, maybe it doesn't matter this question, but are you then, are you then saying that this human thing you believe at your core for people that wonder that people that are going, yeah, but it's just gonna, it's gonna one day it's gonna replicate souls. I mean, do you do you hold on to this idea that there's something alive in humans that can never be replicated? Um, you know, I'm thinking right now about Alfred Adler. Um, and he had like an idea about having the courage to not have to be special right that it, it takes huge courage to just be okay with not being special like we're driven we all want to be special yeah. in some way right and people chase being special in all manner of ways and this is like part of what alfred adler was talking about when he came up with the idea of complexes so some people will make them special make themselves special because they'll talk about you know their bad back or like my back or my bunions or my you know, some kind of ailment or my, my phobia or my anxiety or whatever. So they make themselves special because, you know, through deficit and problems, because it's easier than making themselves special through achieving something. But underneath it all, of it all is this desire, this need to be special. Oh, my God, it would be terrible if I wasn't special. And that it takes a huge courage to be okay with not being special. Right. And to like be okay with it, not to be like, oh, well, I accept I'm not special. It's a shame. But, you know, it's literally like, who says I should be special or I shouldn't be special? What is special even? What does special even mean? Special by what criteria? And who is the I that even might have that label of special attached to them, it, him, whatever? So, like, in the end, it's just like, what is it? What is the, what is it that we're clinging on to there with this need to be special, have a soul, or something like that? I don't know. I think that that this AI stuff is an intelligence already. Some people are saying, well, it's not really intelligence; um, it's just artificial communication, not artificial intelligence, or whatever. I think it's. I, I'm happy to ascribe it intelligence. I don't think it'll ever be. I think it will be a different intelligence. It will be an intelligence that outshines most human all humans in a variety of different ways and it'll be something that it's like to be human that it'll never be like to be an ai and 
in the end, other than that, I mean, going beyond this, I'm going to say some stuff which I can't really talk about well now. Um, and it's just going to sound like a load of hippie crap, probably. But <laughs> I'm, um, I'm really getting more and more to this point now where I legit have no clue what I am. Uh, you know, I know I've got ideas and I know I can make some sort of rough sense of myself, but I know that it's a rough sense and that there is, and that what is myself is debatable underneath of it. I, I sort of like see myself more and more as a sort of a node in the universe, something that the universe comes through or parts of the universe. I don't mean me as in a special way. I think like the universe unfolds through every aspect of itself. Um, and so it's unfolding through the thing that I, quote unquote, might call me, quote unquote. You know, so like all of my special ideas, anything that I might judge as being special about me isn't really me anyway. It's just something of the universe unfolding through what I call me in this particular way. Right. If I do brilliant things, is it really me? Is there really a me to do them or is it just like brilliance unfolding through? Like there's the old idea of genius. People were not geniuses in the ancient world. Genius visited them. It came through them. They weren't a genius. Yes. Right. Like they didn't have to claim it and own it. It's just like genius came through. Um, so like so far as I'm concerned, here I am part of the unfolding an eddy in the great river of everything. And, you know, like, so there's no need to compare myself to anything else or other people or chat GPT-4 or anything like that. Um, I'm a part of the universe. I am of the universe, the, the great unfolding, and so is chat GPT-4 and everything else that's happening and unfolding and all of that. And just like... I have a sense of self, I have a sense of I, I have a sense of agency and all of that. And I can play the game of the I that chooses. And that's a very generative game to play. Um, but then I can also play the game of like, I'm just being done by the universe. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, so like, I know all of this sounds a bit cosmic and a bit out there and all of that, but it's one of the reasons why I think that I probably don't have a lot of anxiety about things like, you know, big changes in the world or the end of capitalism or what AI is going to do or whether it's going to, what it, what it means about us or anything like that. You know, I'm not actually a deep thinker about any of that stuff because it's like, I know I can't know anyway. I can't make, <laughs> I can't make sense of it anyway. So I'm just going to dance with it. Yes. Um, yes. That's what I love. You are, it, it is a constant playful relationship with things that you have rather than a do or die extreme stakes this is a, this is worth doing this is what's not worth doing um and it's intriguing because you see the output of it and clearly it you know you you seem pretty humble in in a lot of the thing the way you relate to your material and yet uh you know you talk to other people about james Tripp, and they're like this guy's got the stuff man this guy's got the best stuff ever so clearly this unfolding is making an impact um and you're just playing yeah and, and that's that's the point like i think this is all that any of us get to do is play so like that distinction earlier of labor and work the real work is a kind of generative play um 
you know, and there are people who are out there playing. And I look at the people that make the really big differences in the world and are really participating in, I think, the evolution of human consciousness, right? And not because they are hugely advanced people. They're just a node in the universe. The universe is like unfolding through as well. But when I, like, let's play the, the people game. There are people out there who are doing stuff that's difference making, that's really big difference making. Most of them are not marketers, Um most yeah. of them are not coaches, right? They're not any of those things. They are people who are, um, there's a guy called uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, Habermas, who's a later Frankfurt School guy. And he had a disagreement with the earlier Frankfurt School guys about um, some important things. And one thing that he thought was really important is what he called communicative rationality. And communicative rationality is what I would call probably generative engagement and generative communication. What he pointed out is that that human beings um, can powerfully create their world when they get together and co-create. This is my language, not his. They co-create in what he calls the public sphere. So we contribute towards the evolution of our collective sense-making when we engage generatively in in what he calls the public sphere. And I look at people out there in the world who are doing this, and there's all sorts of people out there. And I I think anybody who engages with what Jürgen Habermas calls communicative rationality, right, is participating in the evolution of human consciousness and understanding. And I think that this is happening more and more in the world than it ever has before. And it's more democratic in a sense than it ever has before. And there are forces out there who are trying to control that generative discourse and shut certain people down from speaking, uh, you know, either by means of using uh, technical capabilities to do it or by sort of no platforming people and these sorts of things. Um, but the point I'm making is that the people who are out there really doing it, they didn't go out and go, do you know what? I'm going to go out into the world and start making a really big difference, or I'm going to go and launch this podcast because I want to make a ton of money, or or I want to be the next big podcast success or something like that. Like the people that are really out there, really evolving people's sense-making. I mean, Greg, who do you listen to podcast-wise? Who are you listening to? Oh my gosh. I mean, uh, obviously your show, uh, Trip and Crow, and I do mean that. Um, yeah. George, uh, certainly Jordan Peterson's show, uh, sometimes Sam Harris. I mean, Joe Rogan. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I like a lot of Lex Friedman. I really like Lex Friedman and how. Oh, yeah. Lex Friedman's great. People. But these are people who are having real conversations, generative conversations, like Jordan Peterson. I was talking to somebody about Jordan Peterson the other day. They're going, I don't like that guy. I'm like, I'm not entirely sure I do either, right? And I don't agree with him about a lot of things, but I actually think, like a lot of people think he's a hateful guy and all of this kind of stuff. I know he gets angry. He can get vitriolic at times. I actually think he's a force for good in the world, right? I think it's important that people like Jordan Peterson are out there and that there is diversity amongst voices and, and people who are willing to actually have discussions. I know he comes from a subjective perspective. I know he's biased. It's, there's no rule that says people shouldn't be biased, right? But the people who are out there really engaging. And when did when did everything go big for Jordan Peterson? Right? <laughs> right. 
you know, it went big when he started to speak about stuff he really cared about, like stuff he thought was important. Yeah. You know, not because, and that wasn't some cynical move to get publicity or boost his career or whatever. In fact, it was a career endangering choice. Yes. You know, so I'm not saying that Jordan Peterson's playing in the world, but I think that he's out there and he's doing his work. Right. And some people might go, no, he's not. He's just like doing it for his own ego or whatever. I'm sure he's got an ego. Everyone's got an ego. Um, I'm, I'm just using Jordan Peterson as an example. You know, and I think it's important that there are all sorts of voices engage in conversation. And I think there are standards to that conversation. I think, you know, it's worth looking at things like avoiding ad hominem attacks, actually addressing ideas rather than trying to dismiss people and say, well, you can't listen to what they say because of who they are. Yeah. You know, I think this is a very, very unhealthy thing. I do actually have faith that uh, collectively we we best co-create when we are um, open to engage sincerely with each other. Uh, so why am I talking about that? What were we talking about? Just, <laughs> I just, just, pe just people being out there in the world, doing their work, contributing, yes. you know, exploring, not necessarily being kind of, well, this is the point about Jürgen Habermas, right? Yes, yes. So, so he's got this idea of communicative rationality. And he was addressing a couple of guys, one of whom was his mentor, who uh, guys called Adorno and Horkheimer, who wrote a book called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. And they pointed out that enlightenment thinking uh, would always lead to horrors like fascism in the end. Right? This is what they believed. And they believed so because they believed that all rationality was what they called instrumental. And I think this idea comes from Max Weber originally. Right? And what they mean by that is rationality is always used to achieve a certain ends. It's always about achieving outcomes. All rationality is about achieving an outcome. Otherwise, it's not worth anything. So um, they basically saw rationality as, as all about means to ends. And therefore, it turned everything into means to ends, including other people. So other people would be um, ultimately subordinated to the ends and become means in themselves. And that's what kind of fascism starts to do. It starts to use people. Uh, this is what they said. Now, Habermas said, no. That is true that rationality can be used that way, but that's not the only way that rationality is used. Um, Habermas said that it gets used that way in what he calls the system, which is the political and economic system. And there's another half of life, which Habermas calls the life world. And the life world is what everybody does when they're just getting on with their lives, right? Most days they're talking to other people, they're deciding what to do, right? They're deciding like how this thing works, how it doesn't work, what to do, right? They're talking about everyday trivial things, but in the life world, most people are not acting instrumentally most of the time. Most of the conversations people have are about figuring stuff out, not trying to make other people do things, right? So we get together and we talk and we figure things out with other people. And this is what Habermas calls communicative rationality. And he says, this is a really, really important thing, really important. And that the problem in the 20th century was not that rationality was a problem, but that, that communicative rationality had been pushed out the way. 
and that more and more the media, instead of being involved in informing people so they could make decisions about things and think about things, had started to act instrumentally, i.e. making people think certain things or behave certain ways. Right. So that we need to get back. Habermas's point is that we need to get back to this idea of what he calls a generative. Well, he calls a public sphere. I would call it a generative public sphere, whereby people engage in communicative rationality. That is collective sense making. Of course, disagreement is within going to be a part of this. Um, Habermas also talks about the idea of intersubjectivity, which I think is a really important idea. Like everybody comes from their own version of the world. So nobody's got the objective answer. But we create better understanding through bringing our different subjectivities together and communicating with each other generatively from those different subjectivities, right? So this is why some people might go, Jordan Peterson, he's terrible. He's got terrible views. He mustn't be heard, right? He comes from his subjectivity. Of course, he does not have the objective truth. Neither does anybody else, right? So a lot of people, you know, I'm curious about thinkers like Jordan Peterson. I'm curious about, I was watching like a bunch of... Uh, Judith Butler clips, right? So Judith Butler is, you know, the generator of queer theory. Like, so a lot of people are more kind of right-leaning and go, my God, James, you went near that stuff. Yeah, I want to know what they think. I want to understand how they make sense of the world, right? People from all sorts of places. And like, once you stop reacting to it, you go, well, there's some interesting stuff in here, but I think there's some contradictions as well that might be problematic. But I think it's important that people, like everybody is allowed to, engage generatively in communicative rationality in the public sphere. I think it's a really, really important thing, collective sense-making, you know, and I think the people out there more and more, the, the internet has created a situation whereby this is allowed. Certain platforms are trying to stop it. They're trying to control discourse, of course, but still it's finding its way through. And I think this is a really good and really healthy thing. I think podcasting is a really good, really healthy thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know what? One more question before yeah. we wrap up, because I am, I, I am curious what your take is on this in the realm of AI and in optimizing yourself as a human. I mean, what do you think the role of? I, I, I I'm just curious about your take. The personal knowledge management movement um i actually learned about this from your group there are a bunch of people talking about uh using obsidian for note taking and organizing the stuff you're learning and and i feel like this creates another it, it's it's interesting that it's happening alongside mm. ai because ai is um it's well the people are coming up with tools to make it easier to do and and one might then say well you don't even need the knowledge because you can just have it as an external hard drive and pull on it when you need it but i do think there is something special about uh the way that you relate to the information in the world that you're bringing in i mean do you uh it's something i've always thought about when i read books and i go okay i read this I wish I'd been taking more notes on that. I wish I could have cataloged mm. that somewhere. I mean, mm. do you have any any thoughts on best practices for that? Or is that is it a worthy pursuit? Is it getting overblown? People are obsessed with building a second brain now. Uh, how, how does that relate to everything that is happening in the world right now and, and what we can do to be our most generative selves? Well, that is, um, I'm going to just say that's a legit awesome question. I love that question. Um, I 
run a Zettelkasten. Do you know what a Zettelkasten is? I do, I do, but explain it for people that don't. Okay, so um, this uh, this was a thing that was created, invented by the sociologist and systems thinker, Niklaus Luhmann. Um, is Luhmann dead or is he still alive? If he's alive, he's old. Uh, Luhmann, people in the English-speaking world don't know of Niklaus Luhmann because he was German and he wrote most of his stuff in German. He wrote a lot of stuff, yes. Niklaus Luhmann did. Um, and he was a very interesting thinker and a systems thinker as well. So his stuff is based in systems thinking. So he, somebody had asked him at some point, you know, how come you write so many books? And he said something like, I don't write them. My Zettelkasten writes them, right? And I, I think uh, Zettel, Zettel basically means slip and it's like a slip um, case or, or whatever. It's like a filing cabinet, basically. Uh, so what he did is he had these filing cards. He had this huge, like, piece of hard... Um, Real-world furniture. You can do this with software now. So people have advantages that he didn't have. But he had a, a system of taking notes on cards and creating interconnections within them. So these cards would be on, they would have like different codes and different ways. So you can, in software terms, you can use hashtags, you can use direct links. Best way to describe it is you build your own Wikipedia. Yes. Right? That, that basically... It's for you, and you can search it, and you can interact it in a variety of different ways. Um, I use a piece of software called the Archive, which is text-based. So I, I was running the Zettelkasten because I really like this idea of starting to organize and, and create this network of ideas that I could interact with. And I've been doing this for a few years now. Um, once I started playing with ChatGPT 3.5, I'm like, whoa. This plugs straight into my Zettelkasten. And I started to do a lot of co-thinking with ChatGPT 3.5. And I would literally pull things out and put it into my Zettelkasten and then create, you know, I'd be creating cross-links and uh, hashtags and categories and this kind of thing. So it's sort of cross-pollinate inside of there. Now, what does this do for me? Is it worth it? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, like, as soon as I, I can feel the energy of that question, as soon as I ask it to myself, it's like, uh, I have no clue. But I, I find it a very, very creative thing. And I think what it ultimately does is I think it stimulates my real brain at a higher level, doing this, engaging in this process. Um, I don't think, like, so it changes me. Zettelkastening, if that's a fair enough verb, uh, changes me it evolves me being engaged in a process i find it a very very uh generative thing to do it is a way of being a bit more rigorous in my thinking and perhaps keeping things from evaporating i suppose as much so i like it i think it's a good thing um i'm into it and i don't do it perhaps as rigorously as some people do and i'm i don't hold on to it desperately i did initially go well you know is this really changing me or is this am i just building a thing that i might as well not bother building because i could just go and look this stuff up on the web if i want anyway but there's something about the process of doing it that i find useful i, I like the fact i can speak into it i dictate into my settle cast a lot of times 
Um, I use various other things. I use something called uh, Descript. Do you know Descript? Oh, yes. Well, it's definitely recommended for podcasters. Yeah, I really like it, by the way. Um, Alex started using it for the Trip and Crow podcast, and he had all sorts of problems with it. But I think it might have been his his laptop was not agreeing with it. Uh, I use it a lot, but I, I, use, I use it for editing stuff. So I use it for editing like the live frames in the, the open frames in the Nexus. But I also like, well, often if there's a YouTube video, I've just watched something and it's like, ah, that bit at like, you know, 17 minutes and 23 seconds, that person said that thing at that point. Um, I'll just like download that video and put it straight into Descript and isolate that bit out and then pull that bit out and put it into my Zettelkasten and then cross-link it with other related or relevant ideas. Or I might then have a conversation about that piece with ChatGPT 3.5, which is going to generate some other interesting things. And then that plugs into my Zettelkasten. So in, in a sense, I've got all these bits and pieces that fit together. Um, and I use my Remarkable for longhand writing as well, Remarkable 2, which I then turn those bits into... Uh, text and they can go into my Settlecast. And so I've got a number of different ways of interacting with the Settlecast and, and thinking with it and thinking with Chat GPT 3.5 or Chat GPT 4 now. Um, so I, I think it's good stuff in that way. And I think it really can be an enhancement if we want to develop ourselves and create richer understandings and do good sense making. It can help us do good sense making. All of these things can. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, um, and I was really asking because I think it's just such a, it is an attempt to, and it's described this way, especially in that book, Building a Second Brain, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's an attempt to align consciousness with the overwhelm of technology and the overwhelm of content. And I imagine as we keep seeing more and more and more people are going to seek ways to just organize our internal world digitally. Um, mm. And uh, it, it seems like one of the most obvious ways to do it is is uh, take the knowledge that you're consuming or you find interesting and tracking it. But like all things, um, I know that it, then, then people can become obsessed with second brains and then I could stay all day looking those up and then not actually write anything down. So, right. um, so the, yeah. thing, the thing is, if you're going to do that, do it. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing about it is, and I'll just say this, I've got an instinct uh, that came up, a little trill in my felt sense, is I think a lot of people might use that stuff from a sort of almost quiet panic of like, there's so much stuff I've got to avoid, you know, I've got to get on top of it all. So I'm going to use this second brain to get on top of it all, yes. you know, control it and all of that. To me, that stuff doesn't work that way at all, right? It's not about controlling anything or getting on top of something or making sure everything is where it needs to be or I, you know I don't lose anything it's not really about that for me it's about extending my thought processes out beyond the confines of my skull <laughs> if you if you see what I mean um you know it, it's it's about the engagement with it just the same as a generative conversation for me it's about the engagement in the conversation. It's that co-creation within engagement that is that is generative, not like having some sort of things nailed down afterwards 
in a way that I can be absolutely sure of that I've got hold of. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, no. That's I think that's a very uh again a valuable distinction here. Uh this is very very intriguing. What, you know what? I want your one final qu- comment on this because you quoted Nassim Nicholas Taleb earlier. Mm. Um, you know, he put up a tweet that said uh, essentially that ChatGPT is essentially a powerful cliche parroting engine. And as they say in trading, what most people know isn't worth knowing. Mm. What do you think? <laughs> I think that... that uh... Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is a uh, is a is a wonderful, a wonderful human being in uh, so many ways, and cantankerous as anything. Um, <laughs> I I um I think there's something to that, and I think that it, it seems to me in him saying that he's sort of making an, some assumptions about it, which I don't think are necessarily true. And he's definitely making an assumption that it is what it is. And it's not because it is becoming all the time. Uh, and I think that's worth being aware of. A lot of people are like, oh, well, it's only this. Yeah, but this thing is going to move fast now, right? It's going to evolve fast. This is an evolving system. It's going to evolve fast. So I do think there's something interesting to that because basically – like there was an article I shared the other day that's pointing out that, that in a sense it's a huge plagiarizer. It's taking it's taking many generations of human labor and effort and just taking that stuff. It's like that's mine now, and I'm going to create with it whatever I create with it. But I do actually think that it isn't just mindlessly parroting stuff. I do think it makes connections. It puts things together. It does create. I do think it has creativity within it. And yes, of course, it's going to spout loads of cliches as well. But isn't that true of human beings? Yeah, that's a very good point. We all do it, Nassim Nicholas Taleb included. Is it really true that everything that comes out of his mouth or his pen is brilliantly original and utterly free of all cliché? or all existing, you know, pre-existing patternings of human interaction and that kind of thing. You know, so I think that whatever he's saying there about chat GPT, yeah, okay, we could look at that, but I think you could say that about most human beings and maybe if he had a little bit more modesty, he could see that that was true of himself sometimes as well. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, it's very interesting uh, you say that because I... I went to go see, I'll put this in a very, very specific to, to my background context. Uh, I went to go see this musical last week in the Broadway show, Some Like It Hot, based mm. on the classic film. Um, and I watched it, and I really enjoyed watching it, and I really enjoyed the songs. And I came out being like, oh, great, it's great to see a classic tap dancing old style Cole Porter musical on the Broadway mm. stage again. And then as I started reading reviews of it and thinking back on it, one of the, some of the, the harshest criticisms are this show takes a lot of tropes from other things that were done better and, and just kind of, 
cashes in off of that knowing an audience is going to like it. Now, mm. to me, at some level, that analysis slightly does, and this is why reviews in general are just like maybe not even worth paying attention to, but at some level, it does speak to a truth that I uh, semi-consciously identified. I kind of feel the same way about what J.J. Abrams did with Star Wars, especially the first one of the new trilogy. Mm. Um, but at the same time, just because it's derivative and just because maybe I do think the original products are were more enjoyable when I first experienced them, how does that really take away from my experience of joy from it? Saying yeah. it was a good show. It was a great time. It was an evening I wanted. Um, and it's something I've been stewing in the past week. Like, I, mm. I don't think I can really take anything away from it too much if at the end of the day it, it comes down to my playful experience with it. Right, right. You know, and I think that's like totally valid. And of course, probably a lot of these things that that it 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 stole things from, quote unquote, the, and the originals did it so much better. There's probably some review back of one of the originals saying, oh, this took a load of stuff from all these other things and the originals did it better. And then right. you can find some reviews of those originals that say, oh, this is so derivative and the originals did it better. You know, that's a great point. You know, because this is the nature of things. And I tell you, critics, I've been listening to a book recently on um, on critical theory and literature, right? Literature theory, theory of literature, and and listening to like there's this whole thing where literary theory, literary criticism. If you take it, in fact, like the idea of literary criticism or movie criticism or art criticism, right? That's a kind of a game, right? There's a game of critiquing movies. There's a game of critiquing literature, right? So if you decide to become a practitioner of the game of critiquing, of criticism, then what you want is you want theory that informs you in playing your game better, okay? It's just the same as like, if I want to get better at basketball, I want to have good basketball theory that informs my basketball game. Or if I'm going to get better at chess, I want to understand chess theory because I want to be able to play the game of chess better, right? Now, the thing about literary criticism or art criticism or um, movie criticism, whatever, is the game is criticism, right? So the game of literary criticism is not the same as the game of literature. But a lot of art, you know, a lot of liter literary critical th theory, the theories of literary criticism, um, they they might have this whole framework. You couldn't create literature from that framework. You can only criticize literature from that framework. If you actually wanted to create literature, you would need a whole different set of theories if you're going to be theory informed, right? This is why, like, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about the idea of critical theories and critical theory in general like and this idea in part comes from people you know like philosophers like the the people of the frankfurt school they actually talked about this stuff as being critical theory and they said it's different from traditional theory because traditional theory is about doing things critical theory is about liberating people i.e., you by picking like what's wrong with everything 
but you know i've got this idea that critical theory never really creates anything <laughs> you see yeah um uh any critical theory in any area now i'm not saying it cannot be useful but as a primary creative means and like if it just ends up that being all it is when the frankfurt school people came up with critical theory and counterpointed that with what they called traditional theory they didn't mean to replace traditional theory right it's just an adjunct to anyway my point being this it's like i think it ends up being easy if you get good at the game of criticism you criticize anything you can pull it apart you can deconstruct it you can you know and in doing so it destroys whatever it is you know and, and i'm i'm not saying that people should or they shouldn't i just like a little bit dubious about people that only are critics that that's <laughs> that's their job right they, they're like a movie critic but they never made a movie or they're an art critic but they're a literature critic and they never wrote anything or anything like that and of course, a lot of these professional critics that work for newspapers, that's all they do. Yeah, at least, you know, uh, Nassim has has created something in this world oh, yeah. in, in I, many realms. Yeah, I, I, you know, I really, I think, you know, he is a cantankerous mofo. Um, and I think, you know, he's a little bit self-congratulatory at some points. But I think he's a brilliant guy. I think he's a brilliant thinker. Again, a person I think is adding value to the world by bringing what his mind creates certainly well look mm. i appreciate the value you're bringing we got the sub stack we'll link people to agents of everything the yep. trip and crow podcast which is available i i mean i've been watching it mostly on youtube but it's available on all listening platforms as well uh james trip dot online uh we we have the nexus program that's still running the online deep apprenticeship uh for hypnosis training and and all the stuff on neurolinguistics uh anything else james i mean i know you got your youtube channel chaos wave as well i have yeah i, I keep meaning to rebrand that at some point uh what, what i'm saying to people at the moment is if people go to my sub stack and they sign up for that that's going to be my central point for letting people know about other things that are going on like the triple pro crow podcast and i'm gonna my intention is to do some writing on there as well that's something i want to get into more a little less oh, maybe we'll just link people to that then is that is yeah, that the hub that's, yeah, <laughs> is that's that what we need thing. Yeah, it's a free it's a free Substack. So some of them are subscription based, but my Substack is free. If you get on there, you get access to you'll find pathways out to everything else. Sounds great. Hey, look, uh, that's not a metaphor for this conversation. Uh, mm. Yes, love it, love it. Um, such an interesting conversation as always. I don't even know, you know, I mean, I feel the first time we did hypnosis, the last time we did generativity, this time it was kind of, uh, it, it was very much, I feel like we, we were talking about the intersection of technology and consciousness. Yeah. Um, well, that's, is... what we, that's what all of us, uh, you know, this is, this is the, what well, this is the, the salient thing, edge of our time, you know, it's the development edge for, for everybody in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, look, I, I am so grateful for your perspective on it because it definitely ordered some things and and uh, made me less anxious. So uh, I, I appreciate your time as always, and uh, I, I look forward to future conversations and everything you're doing. Indeed, Greg. Thank you for having me on. I always enjoy these conversations. Thank you, James. James Trimp. Two and a half hours later, 
Did we even beat Jordan Peterson and Brian Rommel? ChatGBT is a large language model, but could it even contain the amount of thoughts I spit-fired at James and rapid succession to clear the overwhelm in my head? The Turing test is not supposed to be one of endurance. Anyways, I want to thank James for fielding all my questions and answering them masterfully. I want to thank Zero Boy for the pre-theme music, Ronnie McGilbrey for the theme music, and I want to thank you, dear listener, for sticking with me through it. Glad to have meaning back in the world. Talk soon.